You are my superior officer. You are also my friend. I have been and always shall be yours. Space Station Regular One, this is the Starship Enterprise. Please come in. Space Station Regular One, do you read? We have a problem. Something may be wrong in Regular One. We've been ordered to investigate. It is our intention to introduce the Genesis device into a pre-selected area of a lifeless space body, a moon or other dead form, instantaneously causing what we call the Genesis effect. Matter is reorganized with life-generating results. Suppose, what if this thing we use where life already exists? It would destroy such life. Admiral, sensors indicate a vessel in our area. Closing fast. What do you make of her? It's one of ours, Admiral. It's Reliant. They're locking phasers. Ray shields. Sulu, divert all power to phasers. Too late. Hang on! He wishes to discuss terms of our surrender. You still remember, Admiral. We found him on City Alpha 5. Easy. Easy. He put creatures in our bodies to control our minds. He's completely mad, Admiral. He blames you for the death of his wife. I know what he blames me for. I'll agree to your terms if, if, in addition to yourself, you hand over to me all data and material regarding the project called Genesis. You have proved your superior intellect and defeated the plans of Admiral Kirk. You do not need to defeat him again. He tasks me. He tasks me and I shall have him. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. Welcome back to the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky. I'm Richard. And if I'm correct, Rich, this is the first time since pre-pandemic times that you and I are recording together face-to-face. This is this is it. I almost didn't recognise you. Yeah, but we are not alone because years ago we made the decision to leave a genetically enhanced tyrant marooned to put an end to his play to take over the world. But he's escaped and he's found us and he's ready to wreak upon us his vengeance with his most definitely real and not prosthetic muscular chest. He's here with us on British soil in person, live, in the flesh, for real. It's Mr. Bill Scurry. I'm the last indigenous life form of Amsterdam. <laughs> Very happy to be here. Finally, together, Bill, let's right. Let's give our listeners a little bit of background as to how this has become the episode of Film 89 that's been the longest in the making, because it was March 2020, just days before the UK went into its first lockdown, that you were due to fly over here and join us, that's myself, Richie, and Neil, and some others, at a special screening of the film we're going to be talking about tonight, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And that screening was going to be hosted by the world's greatest living actor, William Shatner, but the show's organisers pulled the plug at the 11th hour and cancelled it. 
it. Fast forward to 2021, the show was to be rescheduled, but that too got cancelled. But that was far more in, in advance that time, and sadly, it's not been rescheduled. But Bill, you were determined to finally break bread with us, and you decided to hop across uh, the pond from your newly adopted homeland of Amsterdam. And here we are now in the same week that 40 years ago saw the release of The Wrath of Khan. So the timing actually proved to be quite serendipitous. Sagacious. What about that? Yeah. So, Star Trek to The Wrath of Khan. Now, Bill and I, along with John Aminio, back from three years ago? Yeah. Three years ago. Holy cow. Christ we did an me. episode on, for those fans of chronology and things being in their natural order, Star Trek The Motion Picture. But, Rich, you obviously weren't part of that episode but what do you think of star trek the motion picture in relation to the other track films that followed it for me the star trek 2 was always the first star trek film for me that was mm. always that was I, I saw that when i was a kid in fact it was probably my first introduction to star trek was the the first not the first thing star trek 2 3 and 4 they were my introduction to star trek so that was what star trek was for me you know it might have even been post final frontier that i saw the motion picture for the first time so it was very very different i'd even i'd watched the original series by that point but this film was always not something that was shown very often on british television in my small video rental shop in in uh, where i grew up it wasn't available in there so it was a rare treat for that to actually be on television and i can remember my uh, father recording it for us to watch and my first impressions were that it was i really i was desperate to to enjoy it desperate to like it but i found it very slow paced I rewatched it as an adult, enjoyed it a lot more, but I'll always have Star Trek 2, 3 and 4 as my introduction to Star Trek and yeah. it always hold that kind of sort of uh, special place for me. Yeah. So you're the one guy who didn't like it then. That was you. Well, you know, <laughs> son of a bitch. I <laughs> I was kind of riding along on yours and John's sort of wave of enthusiasm because when, and it was my suggestion to do the motion picture because I just had an urge to dig out that that dusty old copy of the director's edition DVD from 2001 and prepping for that episode, I watched that. When I saw that director's edition first, that gave me a kind of newfound love for this film, the motion picture. But, and it's not that I was withholding this opinion from that episode, but I do agree that a lot of people's criticism of that film and of its pace and it's like Richie said I'm sure we said on the episode but Richie said to me a few nights ago having rewatched this we, The Wrath yeah. of Khan and we, and we were discussing how it compares to the first film and you said as I'm sure we mentioned on the episode that it is very much like 2001 mm. in its approach to the, the plot story and I think that film has got such an emphasis on awe and spectacle and at the time I think, were they groundbreaking effects for the time? I'm going to say no, because if you go back to 1968 and look at yeah. 2001, I think the effects... like Clearly, Robert Wise felt that he needed to update those effects in the early 2000s, mm. whereas Kubrick's film doesn't need to do that. And yeah, you know, as we, just, as we discussed, there were a lot of behind-the-scenes production issues. The budget spiraled out of control with the first film. But I really do appreciate the motion picture for what it is because it took that TV format and it put it on screen, on the big screen, and it, it showed us a lot of spectacle and it gave us the Enterprise and its crew years later. So they were kind of, you know, that, that, that triangular relationship between Bones, Spock and Kirk. Mm. Clearly they hadn't been around each other for a long time. Spock had gone through the colonar, he'd purged himself of all emotion. He was essentially quite a different character to yeah. when we last saw him. And there's that thing of them getting to know each other again in order to combat this this big threat. And they are, they are just some golden moments in that film. Like that wink that Kirk gives. Um, Chekhov. Chekhov. Yeah. Pure Kirk. It's fantastic. And there are moments of, of horror, like the transporter accident, which 
Mm, you know, yeah. it's so well Cronenberg done. Cronenberg and Outer Space. Yeah. yeah. And then there's that bit of as much as, you know, it's been poked fun at of the going around the the Enterprise. The, the model work is second to none. It is fucking phenomenal. Yeah. And it is a showcase for the special effects. And I've not seen the new latest remaster of that where the effects have been upgraded to 4K. And God bless Paramount for finally doing that. You know, I, I said at the time, I desperately want this film to be given a, a full-on 4K upgrade. But just going back to where this lies for me in the Star Trek canon, it's kind of... If you're going to take away the, the next generation films, which are a thing unto themselves with a different cast of characters, maybe you know, with the exception of generations, those first Star Trek films, six Star Trek films, which have got the original cast in it, I have to say that I put five at the bottom, then the motion picture, because I love the trilogy of two, three, and four. Yeah. And they do form a trilogy because there's a clear continuity of, of plot and story across the three films. And then I'd also throw six into the mix, where I, I would order the you know the films outside of uh, five and one. I don't know, but I'm I'm gonna put my cards on the table early on. Star Trek True, is, it was always my introduction to the the big screen Star Trek films, like it was with you. Yeah, yeah. And on this rewatch, as I have made quite clear to Bill and 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 Neil and John and and Moose and cut and a couple of the other guys who, who we regularly chat with, there's no point leaving it to the end to my summary of it. This is one of possibly my top 20 favorite films of all time i i think it's just absolutely phenomenal but as we'll go into now the sort of funny enough genesis of the film you know its production was quite different to that of the original film and it's my understanding that a lot of that is because started true and like the motion picture was made by paramount's motion picture division wrath of khan was actually made by paramount's television division i think the budget was about a third of that of the motion picture but oh easily yeah yeah and they chipped away at it and the other big thing, which you know, you and I have discussed, Bill, is this effective sidelining of Gene Roddenberry, who on the motion picture had kind of been a thorn in the side of that production. And for Wrath of Khan, they brought in Harve Bennett as executive producer, and Gene Roddenberry was actually effectively relegated to creative consultant. He was fired. Let's put it right. He was yeah. not only fired, he was barred from the set. He was asked to not come mm. back, and he was given a payoff uh, title of, yeah, like executive consultant or something. Yeah, and I, I can't remember how much we touched on that in the motion picture episode, but it's quite clear that Star Trek, as it was from that film onwards, was veering away from Gene Roddenberry being, you know, an active creative force in the films. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Gene Roddenberry was one of those guys that believed in his own creation so vehemently, but could not see all the angles around it. And the irony, or maybe it's not an irony, this happens for a lot of, uh, you know, things that are great. Maybe the creator is not the best uh, Crea interpreter. Creator. The creator. <laughs> Roddenberry unit. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't the best uh, interpreter of the message. And the thing is, along the way, you had people who saw aspects of Trek and were able to express pieces of it in the same way that Gene Kuhn on the original series was able to do and so, so well, almost better than uh, Gene Roddenberry in some series. And some of those writers and some of those directors, granted, under you know Roddenberry's guidance, managed to ex exact some great hours of TV. But they did so in different ways, and they emphasized different aspects of Roddenberry's message. But he was fairly dogmatic about what Star Trek should be. And if anything, these films were not dogmatic about what his idea of Star Trek were. They took the inspiration, but they went in different directions with it. Yeah. Now, spoiler alert for a film that's 40 years old. If you haven't seen this film by now, then we are going to be you know, going into some major you know, spoiler 
uh, you know, territory. We do apologise, but you have had 40 years to catch up. Now, Leonard Nimoy apparently didn't want to do a second Trek film, but Harve Bennett suggested to Nimoy that they kill Spock off. And at that point, he was on board. Shatner insists that the way Spock's death in the reactor chamber was filmed was his idea. And the first script that Nimoy was sent had the death scene much earlier on in the film, and he wasn't keen on Spock's role in the story. Now, director Nicholas Meyer, he'd gained success in the mid-1970s with his best-selling novel, The 7% Solution. He was brought on board to helm the Trek sequel, and he'd never really he'd never really watched the show, had he? No, but he did direct one feature beforehand. In yeah. the, he directed Time After Time in 79. Yeah. And when Nimoy met Meyer, they both agreed that the script wasn't great. And, and Meyer said, hey, fine, no problem, bear with me. And in 12 days, he, wrote, he rewrote the script. Yeah. So the main cast inside, everyone comes back, you know, the, the, the original TOS cast. Ricardo Montalban at the time was finishing the sixth series of Fantasy Island, and he was intrigued by the script that was presented to him. He'd rewatched Space Seed several times to get back into the mindset of, of what he was in when he first played Khan. Uh, Space Seed, that was season two, wasn't it? Season one. Season one. It was season one episode. Yeah. I, thought, I thought season two was over season one. No, right. Season one is so strong, you forget. Just yeah. about all the big things you hit are in yeah. season one. Episode 23. season two was when Mirror Mirror, and, it, and there yeah. was like a strong run of episodes in season two, wasn't it? Yeah. Just right, okay. So he was trying to get back into the mindset he was in when he first played Khan, and then filled in the gaps as to what had happened to Khan in the years since Kirk had left him on set the Alpha 5. Now, guys, Richie, you've just rewatched Space Seed. Yeah. I watched it maybe maybe two or three years back. Do you think, guys, that in order to get the best appreciation of the Wrath of Khan, you have to have seen Space Seed first? No. I've waited 46 years before watching Space Seed. You only no. just watched Space Seed? I only Seed. just watched it for the first time. It, it expands. No, I've watched some start. Like, I've watched TOS episodes, but uh, Space Seed was not among them. Um, it adds to your enjoyment. But to, to be fair now, it's, it's you know, the Heisenberg principle. It's mm. like, it's been observed. And yeah. so I watched Space Seed with the knowledge of having uh, Wrath of Khan in my head 10 billion times. Yeah. Right. So that's what emphasizes the importance of the series rather than the other way around. What it does, pick what you do pick up on is that he recognises Chekhov, and Chekhov wasn't in the Chekhov episode. Chekhov what, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. he wasn't in season one. No. And, you know, the great thing was that Walter Koenig, reading the script and knowing full well that he <laughs> would have potentially been a continuity error, he could have effectively raised his hand and said, um, actually, I was never in that episode, and he would have written himself out of that scene. Yeah. yeah. That amazing scene with, you know, him and Ricardo Montalban and, and my uncle, Paul Winfield, because, yeah, we are related. <laughs> and... He was great and sounder, just yeah. like you were. He yeah. he did the the kind of I say was it underhanded? Was it sneaky? But my God, no actor is ever gonna say, "Oh yeah, yeah, you know, you shouldn't put me in." You that should scene. give me less lines. Yeah, yeah. give me. But, yeah. but 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 if I, if I remember correctly, Chekhov isn't introduced as a new character in season two anyway. It's so we can safely be assumed that he's an ensign. Yeah. And why was he introduced, Bill? As uh, I found this, out this last is, night, this is a great bit of trivia: is that George Takei had started shooting the Green Berets with John uh, Wayne in between seasons, and they knew the shooting was going to go over time. So what they did is they need someone to fill in that uh, scene. So what they did is they brought in Walter Koenig in a uh, was it Davy Jones wig, thinking that this would appeal to the younger people, the monkeys fans, the monkeys <laughs> fans, the and so they, they, but it yeah. worked out in the end because they yeah. kept everybody. Yeah. But they they had a little difficulty figuring out on the show. Well, what did George Takei do, and what did uh, mm. Walter Koenig do? Mm. And you know, but it's like it was a grab when they had a chance to make a grab, yeah. they took it. But I think what George Takei did was wind up William Shatner, was it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, so, lost. the film opens with the on-screen text, in the 23rd century. 
which was Maya's idea and something that he had put in for his father, who wasn't someone who had seen Trek. And it, it was kind of to set out for people coming into the franchise, which, you know, like you say, this was your first experience. Was it your first experience of Star Trek in, no, as I think, a whole? No, I think my, my first memory of Star Trek in the cinema was Star Trek Four, but it was in 1990. I was staying in a holiday park in the west of England in Butlins and <laughs> always ahead of the game. Like, when did Star Trek Four come out? 86? 86, yeah. Yeah, so four years later... Straight in there. Straight in there. <laughs> Straight in there. O- opening night four years later. <laughs> so I saw in the same week, we, bearing in mind we went on, we went to this uh, holiday park for a so week. So when the rest of us were watching Back to the Future 3, Gremlins 2, Total Recall, you're watching. <laughs> He's living in the past, man. <laughs> it's the story of my life. Um, and in the same week, no, it, it, I, I had already seen those films, obviously. Yeah. But in the cinema, I, it must have been raining. It probably was. My dad took me to see that on, on Rocky Four. Four? <laughs> Rocky Four. <laughs> Despite the fact that Rocky Five was out that year, this cinema Rocky Four from nineteen eighty five. Yeah. Wow. Um, however, oh I'd seen, I'd definitely seen Star Trek before then because I wasn't my first, but yeah. I don't remember which. It was certainly two, three, or four were my earliest Star Trek yeah. films. Now I don't know if I don't think going into this film I'd seen Space Seed. I no, definitely, I I'd definitely seen some original series. But I don't think... I, I think Space Seed is one maybe of the last Star Trek well, episodes the, I saw. The original series was off our TV screens for about 15 years. Yeah, Because it, it came back on around 1992 on BBC 92, Two. 92? That yeah. late? Yeah. Wow. Jeez. No, it played, it played continually in the States after um, the syndication deal was woke, was woke back up after uh, motion pictures. So you yeah. almost through the 80s, you had continuous Star Trek being shown on TV. Whether yeah. people were interested or not yeah. is a different story. But, you know, we have a different hunger for um, syndicated shows in that shows like Batman, shows like yeah. Gilligan's Island, shows like Partridge Family played ad mm. infinitum throughout my childhood. And some mm. of that stuff I was I cared about and some was just, it's like, it was cheap filler. Yeah. So it made more sense for them to put it mm. rather than not put it because it occupied airwaves. 6 p.m. was ours. There was BBC Two and Channel 4. And we'd have happy days. We'd have yeah, um, right. Star and, Trek. And I recall that. Now, for me, that felt like that was my second round of the original series. And the first lot was like early Saturday morning TV. You remember, maybe, remember maybe. Bob? Maybe you don't. I mean, nineteen ninety. Maybe yeah. maybe it was nineteen ninety. Then no, I think certainly quite early. Around on. about the time I was always watching Batman. Mm. You know, the the original sixties Batman. That was always on a Saturday morning. I was yes. at my grandparents. And it was always then preceded by an episode of. Star Trek. That's why I'm pretty sure I saw episodes of the original series before. Maybe. I saw. And that could be because I'm a few years older than you, but yeah, I'm pretty maybe. sure that was the, the first time I ever saw the original I, I, series. I thought it was always on BBC Two, but then yeah. may, maybe not. Because I know that it went, I'm, I'm fairly sure it came back on in the wake of The Next Generation. And we got The Next Generation about two years after original broadcasting. So thing. it started in 87, so you guys got it in 89. Really? I think so, yeah. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I was eight at the time, yeah. so... Things are a little hazy for him. Mm. <laughs> so, go back into the film. The opening rug pull of the Kobayashi Maru. Now, that for me has never been a rug pull because I can't ever remember knowing that it's anything other than assimilation. But it was in there to put people off the scent of the leaked plot details regarding Spock's death. And obviously, in this scene, he appears to be killed along with Sulu and Makai. And then it introduces Kirstie Alley as Savick, making her big screen debut. Now, the book that Kirk has with him after the simulation ends, and he comes on, that's A Tale of Two Cities. Charles now. Dickens. Yeah. Charles Dickens, yeah. And lots of that is fed through, and also Moby Dick. And Maya had a talking about Kirk. It's a great introduction. Was it, what does he say? He's sort of like, uh, yeah, that's it, open her up. Yeah. yeah. And he comes in, and he's kind of like, it's got that, um, there's like bright lights behind him. It's back there, yeah. 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 
He's almost like a director. Perfect hero's entry. Between cuts, between yeah. shots, yeah. Now, Meyer had a great trick that he used to get a perfectly natural performance out of William Shatner by doing take after take. After a while, Shatner would get bored and he would stop acting. He would stop giving him that William Shatner, Captain Kirk persona, and he would start just being himself. Something which I don't know if we've seen that much of up until that point. And again, cards on the table now. I'm going to say this is without a doubt for me the the pinnacle of, of Shatner's acting career. Yeah. I don't think he's ever been better. He definitely seems the most natural and the most... Yeah. You know, yeah. like, like, not like he's acting, obviously. He, he won a lot of Emmys and Golden Globes in the late 90s when he was on, uh, what is it, uh, Boston Legal? Boston Legal, yeah. Yeah, he, he had, uh, I mean, Shatner's had more lives than there are sides on a dice. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the weird yeah. thing about it is that he kept showing up over and over again, having act after act after act. And as weird as that his last act, or his most recent act, was his most successful playing Danny Crane on that show. And mm -hmm. he was, you know, upstaging, upstaging James Spader of all people. Just like a weird mixture yeah. of actors, and you know, going back to the going back to the early eighties, he never for me went full on Kirk as T.J. Hooker. That was down a peg. Yeah, I always remember watching that when my grandmother was a kid. She was a huge fan of T.J. Hooker. Like my grandfather was all for Star Trek. He got me into Star Trek. My grandmother was more like, no, no, you know, T.J. Hooker. I, I loved T.J. Hooker as a kid, but I don't ever remember there being that sort of like he was always the older sort of more experienced cop yes, he was, and yeah. it was I think he was always trying to impart what was the name of the guy Adrian Zemed and uh, Heather, Heather Locklear Heather, Heather Locklear yeah. not Heather Thomas from The Fall Guy different blonde no <laughs> my god different transferable yeah. blonde The Fall Guy oh. yeah but yeah he was always I think kind of like that more experienced cool sort yeah. of and you know Kirk should have effectively been the same but you know as we know and as we saw he there were times where that Shatner persona was yeah. just the dominant thing on screen. I don't see that in Star Trek 2. On this most recent rewatch, it has stood out for me more than anything how just amazing his performance is. His line delivery. But as you, you as you were saying, the line that you nailed it on was, here it comes. Here it comes. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about a, a director who would drill actors to the point of exhaustion was Stanley Kubrick. Hmm. He did it for a different reason. Stanley Kubrick was looking for adjustment and change over the course of a thousand takes. And the thing yeah. is, David Fincher does the same thing too. The difference with what Nick Meyer was doing, and Nick Meyer was on his second feature film as a director, his third as a writer and a director, was that he was trying to beat William Shatner as his own game, having this idea that he needed to fight the camp virtues of Bill Shatner's Shakespearean presentational acting that he's been getting away with for a long time. The thing is, Shatner did a lot of good movies and a lot of good TV show, but the one thing you can say about Shatner's technique is it's not necessarily naturalist. It's not method in the way people who came out of like Stella, uh, what is it, Stella Adler and Meisner and that kind of training of the Russians. So the way to beat Shatner in his own game was to fatigue him and exhaust him until he drops his guard and issues line readings that sound vaguely human. And Nick Meyer was one of those guys that got it out of him. Now, I mean, I'll, I'll say that as somebody who loved his uh, line readings for Robert Wise, I think that his, his explanations, his uh, witnessing of what V'ger looks like in Star Trek The Motion Picture for me, sets the tone. It makes it believable. Everybody looking at the view screens and reacting with mm. awe. Yeah. That's a different performance than this one. This yeah. requires acting. And you could even say, I mean, you know, we'll get into it, but he was performing against a script supervisor who was reading lines in deadpan voice off camera, not Ricardo Montalban. They were each playing months apart from mm. each other in separate, you know, separate takes, and yet those two performances meshed together. Yeah. That yeah, they they never faced each other face to face. Not ex except when they had lunch. And they, during the, line, the script readings yeah. on the Paramount lot. Yeah. That was about it. 
And that yeah. was his second film. As a director, he yeah, did yeah. Time After Time. But he wrote The 7% Solution a bunch of years earlier. Which was a huge hit. It was like the number one in the New York Times. I'm just thinking of what a confident kind yeah. of a person to have that yeah. approach. When you're, when you're tackling not only Bill Shatner being the type of person yeah. that he is, but in the character that you know he's so ingrained yeah. with all those years later. And, and, uh, well, and to have yeah. confidence. As, as I told that. Sky, there's one person who will always esteem Nick Meyer's intelligence, and it's Nick Meyer himself. No one was more um, a mm. fine of their own prowess than this <laughs> yeah. guy. He made sure you knew he was yeah. a genius. <laughs> he, he comes across like that in the, in, in the interview material. Yeah. I mean, he walks the walk. He, he yeah. wrote three of these films and directed two of them. Yeah. He's, got, he's got a claim to it. And he came into a long-established franchise having no knowledge of it. And, inst- and where someone would come in there and be like, oh, yeah. no, I know Star Trek. This is what I'm going to turn Star yeah. Trek into. He was just like, okay, I'm not familiar with this franchise, but this is the story I'm going to tell with these characters. And I've read every book imaginable. So we're going to go yeah. one lower in this one. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah well, right. Exactly. Because the whole the whole military angle, that was all Myers doing. That was something that was carried forward in the later Trek films and, and, and Trek shows. And Roddenberry hated that idea. Yeah. That was one of the things he really hated was he did. the Navy. He didn't yeah. want that. And, and, and for me, that is the thing that sets Star Trek II above other Trek films. It's a Napoleonic naval battle yeah, in yeah. space. It's a revenge tale. It's a battle between two sworn enemies. Maya, he makes it clear that he was inspired by the Horatio Hornblower films and he did everything he could to change the look of Star Trek to give everything a more naval military look. The uniforms, the bridge interior, the lighting, it all looks like a, like a submarine yeah. or looks more That's like right. a submarine than this sort of clean, sterile bridge yes. that we are used to. Even though, when, in the motion picture, every, everything was beige and taupe and, yeah. and these sort of colours of my grandmother. crew. Don't forget the A-crew. The A-crew yeah. uniform. But this film was reds and it was it was crimson and... Shadows. Yeah, and, and like... It felt like it was... It felt more industrial, but it felt more practical. Yeah, like the, the, the way that the photon, tor- photon torpedo room works with the crew having to lift those floor grids in order to uncover yeah. the torpedo yeah, yeah. launcher, that goes completely against the idea that the end the price is a modern automated yeah, shift yeah. They, they press the button uh, you know Mr. Sulu fire they press fire yeah. and then the torpedoes automatically loaded to be fair we never saw the mechanism we never saw it but you would assume wouldn't you in 23rd yeah. century that there was a large whirligigger gizmo yeah. that was hydraulically moving into place to yeah. provide magnets yeah. yeah it's the HMS surprise against the Acheron isn't mm-hmm. it? it? It it is that, but in space, and it's not something that we'd no. that we'd seen in Trek before, because Trek was always two ships facing each other, and it was two enemies talking on a view screen, and any sort of like you don't have dogfights with spaceships. And I think it was it was a Harv Bennett or someone said that the distances involved in space, if you're going to have two ships fighting each other, were, were so vast that a yeah. dogfight couldn't happen. Which is why the genius was to get this all to work. They put them in a nebula. Hmm. where the vastness of space is, conde- is is sort of cut away, isn't it? Because there's a background. Yeah. And and if you remember correctly, Scotty, uh, Spock says to Kirk that he exhibits two-dimensional thinking. Yeah. Which is then you yeah. introduce something in space fights that you still hadn't really seen, which is the idea of the X and the Y and the Z axis. Yeah. And then it, it, most of the point you just have uh, people engaging in lateral space battles. But at that point you have the Enterprise going through space up and down to yeah, introduce yeah. another axis, which hadn't really happened before. You know, the, the way that Nick Meyer, he, he dealt with, with William Shatner in order to sort of get this performance out of him. The, the same thing happened but in different circumstances with Ricardo Montalban. Ricardo Montalban had been playing the same character on television in Fancy Island for six years. And his recollection and memory of the mindset he was in when he played Khan back in 66. 66, yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't there. And he kind of gingerly went up to Nick Meyer and said, Nick, I don't know where I need to take this character and my interpretation of him now. But Nick Meyer's suggestion then was, don't worry, I'll give you a couple of days, I'll shoot some, some different scenes with other actors. 
you go away and you watch Space Seed. And he did. He went away and he watched Space Seed and he came back with like this newfound enthusiasm. He was like, I've got it. Now all I need to do is in my mind, fill in the blanks of what's happened to Khan and you're telling me that, you know, Marla's died and stuff like that. And then when he was able to like sort of refresh himself and snap out of that fantasy island mode, he came back. But his initial first scenes that he filmed, he was given everything. Mm -hmm. And Maya said, look, Ricardo, you're a great actor, you're an experienced actor, but if you give me everything, on the first take and then I want in the next take you to ramp things up you've got nowhere to go and you are this super powered human being you are better than Kirk you're better than everyone you're more capable than him you don't need to be given everything yet unless he has backed you into a corner so he was like I've got you he said Nick that's all I wanted was direction yeah and you know for an actor like William Shatner and he would never have been that sort of humble and let's be fair here is that Montalban is saying this from the perspective of this movie being a classic. Mm. These are interviews he did in the mid and late 90s where he's able to be very rhapsodic about it. We don't know if he was looking for... He was very comfortable playing Mr. Rourke on Fantasy yeah, Island yeah. for all that money. We don't know how much direction he wanted, but the, the fairy tale, the, the legend is, is that that's how the performance came about. Which is interesting because I, I honestly don't know what he could have got from Space Seed. I, I, yeah. I haven't watched it. I really I don't. I, I, you know, because... The setup is so clear that unless, depending on what he did to get into that character in the first film... I, I think it was taking him out of the mindset he was in as Mr. Rourke. Must be, yeah. Th I think that was the issue. Yeah, the yeah. fact so, that well, I've, you, you've played the character for six years yeah. and there was no deviation from yeah. that. Yeah. I think keep, that's keep in mind the, the factory, uh, the grind of making TV, make American TV for those, like, what are they, 85 episode seasons. Yeah. And it is a mm. factory of guest stars. Yeah. They could have been on fucking Love Boat at that point. Mm. It was autopilot. Yeah, yeah. And he, he yeah. was asking to be put in... I mean, you know, Ricardo Montalban, among the many things he was, was not a method actor. He'd started movies going back to the 50s. But it's like he doesn't have indelible performances mm -hmm. along the way. There's a lot of films he made, but there's nothing like, nothing truly stellar. Which is why he slotted in perfectly on the ABC, I think it was Sunday night or Friday night show, Fantasy Island, which is this, it could repeat infinitely, yeah. which it did. No one asked him, no one ever directed him before. And that's why he said he was happy to go back to being directed. Right. And and his performance in this film is, is a, it's a I don't, I'm not going to go down the route of saying it's a hammy performance but it's a very theatrical performance isn't it in a good way in a good way yes, yes. it works can you imagine if Nick Meyer had not played that tactic he did with Shatner and you'd had full Shatner going against yeah, yeah. Ricardo Montalban and it would have just been a contest as to who can chew the yeah. scenery the most yeah. but thank God we had a restrained Shatner like look how cool is he when and I know you know I'm skipping ahead in the plot, but that bit where he first realizes this can and can introduces himself on the view screen and he doesn't get phased by it and then he's trying to work up with shit. What, what can we do here? Mm. And then the bit with the glasses, using that as a little yeah. sort of motif of his of his, yeah. his not so much weakness, but the fact that he's he's aging. he's aging. Yeah, the way that Shatner plays that is so cool and calm and subdued instead of being what I would have expected from TOS era Shatner of just more upper level or up two levels. Yeah. Well, think, think about what it would have been like if, um, you know, in every single scene, Shatner steamrolls over his uh, scene partners. With the exception of maybe Nimoy and D. Kelly, who he had a lot of, um, I mean, Nimoy, the relationship with Nimoy was a predicated on a lot of competitive rivalry. So in scenes, they were doing a lot of stealing focus from each other, and that was kind of the point. Hmm. Now, if and but he never appeared in the same camera shot as Montalban, so they didn't actually go against each other and hmm. match energy. It is against a blank slate. 
The question is, what would the performance have been like if they'd been in the same room? Would you get the same magic if these actors had been playing against not just an avatar, a script supervisor yeah. reading lines off set, but the actual man with the energy? They don't get to do that. They're, they're inventing the person in their head that they're playing against. It just happens to cut mm. together magically. And obviously the first time we see Khan in the film, you've got Chekhov's no longer part of the Enterprise crew. He is second in command to Captain Terrell. Uh, oh, Chekhov? Yeah, he's yeah, Commander Chekhov. Commander Chekhov, Chekhov. Commander, yeah. Commander, yeah. Commander of the USS Reliant, which is a, a different ship. And we see them on the... It's a scientific exploration for, effectively, a lifeless planet yeah. for this Genesis device to be used on. Because the thing being that if there's so much as a microorganism on this planet, it's not suitable because, effectively, they're going to be changing the natural evolution of that planet. So they go to SETI Alpha 6, in inverted commas, thinking that it's a, a lifeless dead planet. And then they land, there's like a cargo container, you know, there's dusty sandstorms, visibility is poor, it doesn't look like a particularly habitable planet, but what the hell is this cargo container doing? They go inside and then you've got that beautiful moment. And it's one, it, it, it's my, it's my favorite Walter Koenig moment. Yeah. It's a bit where he finds that, that sort of- um, Seat buckle. Seat buckle, seat buckle. Botany Bay. Botany Bay. And it's the penny dropping. And yeah. even though we know that he wasn't, you know, maybe he just wasn't in the episode. We, he was on the Enterprise, he was on the lower decks, whatever, but. Well, he remembers it. He remembers it. And he was Khan, and Khan, Khan never forgets a never face. Forgets a face. <laughs> never forget a face. Well, even though he wasn't on the ship at the time. You know, but, to, yeah. take, to take a digression for a second, you know, you talk about Walter Koenig a few times here. Uh, Walter Koenig has said recently in, in interviews, he, he saw this at a screening in Los Angeles. And um, he hadn't seen it in a long time, but um, he, he loved the movie all over again, getting a chance to see it. And his old, I think he's 85 years old. He's mm -hmm. been around for a minute now. But Walter Koenig, uh, you don't really notice this, but this is the one shot. Uh, for He got a promotion in this movie. On camera, he was very happy to see Chekhov get uh, scenes away from the Enterprise bridge crew for half the film. Yeah. He got to do things on like, a solo adventure. It was him and Paul Winfield. And Paul Winfield was, I think, eminence grease among actors. People loved mm -hmm. working with this guy. He was a real professional. He did not have to worry about being overshadowed by everything else. He got, an, uh, uh, you won't even say this is a pun, he got an enterprise that other actors did not get to do. Yeah. So mm -hmm. he's the one that's bringing uh, Khan into the world. He gets all the stuff that no one ever got. And what I understand is that George Takei was really envious. George Takei felt like he was next in line for a bump. Yeah. He had been waiting for an opportunity like mm. this to be written from within a bigger a bigger yeah. part. And that uh, Koenig got this... Now, he didn't do an end run, but it was written for him and he was very happy and got relished. But George Takei really held it against him for a while because he thought... I was due this yeah. sort of expansion. He didn't get it. George Takei is captain later Captain on the, in six. In six, yeah. Of the, captain uh, of the... Excelsior. USS yeah. Excelsior. She's a yeah. big ship. Aye, but not as big as a captain. Yeah. <laughs> was there a pirate in that film? <laughs> <laughs> was Blackbeard in that film? <laughs> I growled it too much. Jimmy Doohan didn't growl as much as I did. Yeah, it, you know, no wonder Chekhov didn't sort of raise his hand and say, I shouldn't even be in that scene because... You know, and that's that. what Koenig said. It's like, no, act, no yeah. actor's going to tell him, no, no, I think I deserve less scenes. Yeah. 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 That, that scene. Patni Bay. Oh no. We've got to get out of here now. Damn. What hurry. About, what, what about the Never mind board? it. Hurry. Hurry. Check off. What's the matter with you? Check off. Hurry! 
Montalban in that scene. And that is, you take that scene from start to finish, and it's got the whole gamut of, of Ricardo Montalban. Yeah. Criminal captain. A product of late 20th century genetic engineering. What do you want with us? Sir, I demand to be... You are in a position to demand nothing, sir. I, on the other hand, am in a position to grant nothing. What you see is all that remains of the ship's company and crew of the Botany Bay. Marooned here 15 years ago by Captain... James D. Kirk. Listen to you men and women, you have a catch and cat. <laughs> Save your strength, Captain. <laughs> These people had sworn to live and die at my command 200 years before you were born. Do you mean he never told you the tale? To amuse your captain? No? Never told you how the Enterprise picked up the Botany Bay lost in space from the year 1996. Myself and the ship's company in cryogenic freeze. I've never even met Admiral Kirk. Admiral. 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 Never told you how Admiral Kirk sent 70 of us into exile on this barren sand heap with only the contents of these cargo bays to sustain us. You lie! And City Alpha 5 there was life! A fair chance! This is City Alpha 5! City Alpha 6 exploded six months after we were left here. The shock shifted the orbit of this planet and everything was laid waste. Admiral Kirk never bothered to check on our progress. It was only the fact of my genetically engineered intellect that allowed us to survive. On Earth, 200 years ago, I was a prince. 
with power over millions. Captain Kirk was your host. You repaid his hospitality by trying to steal his ship and murder him. didn't expect to find me. You thought this was SETI Alpha 6? Why are you here? Why? It's got him as cool calculating. And then when he says SETI Alpha 6 was live, and then he explodes. This is SETI Alpha 5. Yeah. <laughs> and it's that explosion. It's just the thing that you could see clearly that Nick Meyer had got right. I've got you now. Yeah. You give me that when I need you to. Yeah. But your regular point to play from is a couple of notches down from that. And even so much as one of the best examples in that scene is when he, he says, why are you here? And it's a bit where the penny drops. It's like, you didn't expect to find me. Mm. I and love that. The way... Yeah. Montalban plays that. He pauses yeah. and he's a beat. Yeah. He's like, what's he going to turn, do? He turns yeah. around. He's thinking of it. Yeah. Almost like a, a Sherlock Holmes moment yeah. where he's and coming across. Whereas now he should it. just be hell-bent on, this is my opportunity to get back out there and yeah. get revenge on Kirk. It's like, well, hang on. Why are you here? You yeah. didn't expect to find me here. Mm. And he's, he's clearly reading the room. He's reading <laughs> he's reading Chekhov's reaction. Yeah. And then he says, why are you here? And he refuses to answer. And then the way he picks him up two feet off the floor... Yes. And he asks him again. And why without that direction here? from Maya, he would have been, why are you here? But he doesn't. He he has got the advantage. He is the superior. Yes. You know, and he says, why are you here? But it's also a great bit of physical, you know, the, the idea that he's supposed to have this uh, superpower genetic uh, build. And he doesn't do anything strength-wise other than maybe remove some debris at the end of yeah. Yoakum. Yeah. But the idea that he, he does this thing where he lifts Chekhov so easily. And the, the movement of it, actually, the blocking yeah. looks very believable. Yeah. Where it looks like he's coming off the ground. You don't see the if it's a lift, if it's a string, or whatever. Yeah. That it happens very naturally where yeah. it looks like Caning is reading the trauma of being lifted. But he's not grimacing at all as if this was an effortless yeah. lift. It's yeah. a yeah. very effective right. bit of blocking. Yeah. And then when he brings it back down to the, you know, the, the sort of you know, the, the coolness of, yeah, I'm not going to get this information from you. So let me introduce you to Seti Alpha 5's only remaining indigenous life form. And it's that. This. Yes. This. Now, talk about childhood trauma. Yes. Hinder trauma. Yes. You were probably about a similar age when you first saw this film to yes, me. Yes. This really bothered me. And I was maybe maybe a couple of years older than, mm. than you were when you first saw it. But it stayed with me. Yes. And you look back at the effects now and... I don't know. Do they work, or is it the fact that I can only look at this thing now and feel horror and dread? Because it, it, it's like a little rubber puppet, and the and the way it was it was cut that if you pulled it, like especially the little baby ones, they would kind of concertina. Mm. And, and <laughs> so when when they land on the on Chekhov's cheek, there's a little bit of filament pulling them, yeah. and they're pulling it. And the way that the rubber pieces have been segmented, you pull it, and the it rest it swarms out. out. Yeah. yeah, it moves very organically. It's a fucking simple thing to do. Yeah. Get the latex, cut it up, put a bit of raspberry jam on it. All of a sudden, you've got this horrible little baby creature. And, and you know, we see the, the mother or whatever it was, or the father, with the babies on the back. And he, he takes the pincers and yeah. you know, he, he grabs the, the antenna or the mouth or whatever it is of this creature. And he pulls these little things off so coolly. Drops them in the helmets. But what does he say about the creatures? It killed many, many members of his crew, including his wife. It, was, it, this, this it, was... it killed 20 members of our crew before. Yeah. Yeah. 
Before including, including Mark, yeah. including, including yeah. That's the thing. It was, this was this was him co-opting that tragedy and abuse. Yeah. It's like you know, talk about monstrousness was to turn yeah. this thing that. That's in, the only time he mentions her, isn't it? Other than he mentions her twice. He says you left like you left, like her, you left her, her wound inside her. Yeah, exactly. And the, you know, this whole scene, it's it's prime Ricardo Montalban in this film. But think about you know the way the Giallo guys like Lucio Fulci would uh, portray damage to the human body, in particular, um, you know the, the the splinter into the eye in Zombie, and you know like, there's there's certain parts of the human body that you know like mortifying the body with razors and cutting it we've seen mm. since forever, mm. uh, breaking limbs, you know you've seen smashing the nose, there's yeah. all this sort of like portrayal of damage to the human body, but. When you get to this other level of, for instance, eye damage, yeah, and then on top of that, ear damage yes. is something yeah. you haven't seen a lot. You want no. to talk about waking up this trauma in a, mm. in a kid yeah. of thinking like, I never thought that something like, imagine what the pain of mm. fucking with my ear canal would yeah. be. You hadn't seen too many yeah. examples of that before. Yeah. So this is the little horrible monster in the sand, yeah. plus its offspring are going to wriggle through your ear canal. That's a double whammy of shit you had not thought of before. I, I used to suffer badly with ear infections, and mm-hmm. that that wrecked me. That day. yeah, yeah. That was that was awful. Yeah. yeah, I did as a kid. Yeah, when you say now about, about the effects of it, the actual creature on this rewatch is so much better than the ear, the prosthetic ear. The pros- yeah, which he eventually comes out of. Yeah, I know. And you're not thinking of it because you're watching the creature. The yes. ear's there, but you really you're focusing but on the creature. It, it's a quick cut from that to Koenig's reaction. Yes, it is. Yeah, and it, yeah. it's. They've got the helmets on though, so they can't even grab their heads. Yeah. And that is the yes. thing that bothers me because you've got this thing it's in your true. ear and you yeah, can't yeah. get oh, your yeah. hand. No, that's fucking Not that now. your hand would even get in your ear to pull it yeah, out. But at least you try. You could at least try it. And the fact that they can't get their hands to their heads, yeah. and it, it's making me feel queasy just talking yeah, about it. Is, yeah. Because it's one of those things that since I saw it as a young kid, it bothered me and it will never not bother me. Yeah. What a st- and this is a PG? Easily. This yeah. is a 1982 PG. Yeah. This is before I, PG. I easily one of the most disturbing yeah. bits of body horror and yet there's more to come mm. yeah there's more to come in the film on the on the thing of the year i have to i don't know whether you noticed not looking for faults but when the creature comes back out of the ear i don't know whether you noticed that it doesn't actually come out of the ear so there's a section where the, the wider shot and it's actually coming out of the top of the ear it's obviously a mistake oh. because as it is it does, it does a closer shot then when it's coming out but on the wide top oh, the wide, ground, no i don't i haven't it's coming that. out if you yeah. rewatch it it's coming out of the top of the ear rather right. than actually and i don't know how I don't know how they would have made that mistake. I yeah. don't know because they're, they're clearly, you know, using um, fake blood yeah. on on Walter Koenig's body. Mm. So why they would put it there? Because mm. clearly it can't come out of there. Never but it that. is very clear yeah. that that is the case. Such is the good job that it was. Yeah. It camouflaged the error. Khan tells them what this creature will do, and it'll make them um, susceptible to commands and, yeah. and control suggestion. We've already been told that this Genesis project, whatever it is, we haven't been told what it is, but then it cuts back then to the Enterprise and they receive a kind of um, garbled communication from regular one. Yeah. There's that bit where, and again, Shatner plays this so well, where it's one of those things where there's nothing more frustrating than a conversation where you can't hear the other person. Well, we've already we, we've missed that we've met, missed Walter, we missed Chekhov having the conversation oh, with, with um, yes, of course, with Khan with, stood just behind yeah. him. And, and, he, and he's saying, well... Because David's... Yeah. You know, you, you, this is not what we agreed. No, no, you can't come in here because David he, feels that the fed, the Federation are going to use it yeah, as a such, weapon. Walter Koenig has such an unsettling placidity to him. Yeah. And especially yes. in comparison with the extremists you saw him in the last scene. Yeah. yeah. And he, you know, again, Koenig did a lot of things well. He's not yeah. a guy you were asking a lot from, but he nailed the bits that they were asking from. He got, then, he got to know, the states. Carol clearly frustrated. He's like, who gave this order? And there's, yeah. there's like a pause and check off. Admiral James T. Kirk. Yeah. Admiral Kirk. And he says this, <laughs> this goofy grin on his yeah, face. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. Is 
Yeah, then we cut to, to, to Khan, and then you know, he says, well, well, it was something like, well done, very good, Mr. Chukov. Yeah. Khan is wearing the coat draped over his shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Which is one of my favorite aspects. Yeah. He's like, it's as if he turned this thing into a, a costume, a cape. And he's now got the belt buckle as a necklace, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so clever. That's so awesome. good. It's Kirk's thing of Carol. Who? Wait, wait. Who? Who would take? What do you mean take Genesis? And it's that whole thing. And from that point, then obviously we, as we like to find out, there's a huge chunk of backstory between him and Carol. They were in a relationship. She got pregnant, and you know th- there is clearly evidence of that knowledge that there is a child that he's not had any part of. He was not invited. To, he was asked to stay yeah. away. He was dissuaded yeah. from contact with. Yeah, Dave because she didn't want Captain Kirk, the the, the Boy Scout, as, as he was, um, being influential on that. And David Marcus thing. also knows his parentage as well. This is, yeah. uh, you know, rather than keeping it a mystery, I think the advantage is it steers into all this strange familial. Kramer versus Kramer yeah, shit. Yeah. You know, in a way that you could approach in the early 80s where people were children of divorce and there was a lot of messiness. And it's like, it doesn't overplay its hand, but you do have this access to strange emotional states that in the middle of it, there's a broken family. Yeah. A lot of weird estrangement. They never tried that before. It really works. Um, before we move on, well, before, you know, we've obviously talked about the setting you'll see, but one of the, the brilliant little bits of direction there is the thing with Khan never removing the glove because he takes he takes a while to de-robe, doesn't he? Yeah. He never takes the glove from his right hand. That was another Nick Meyer construct. And when asked why, he said, it's not my job to supply answers, but for the audience to make their own conclusions as to why Khan never removes the glove. Clearly something's happened and he's, yeah. his hand has been damaged or disfigured. And because he's going to be this superior being, it's like, no, I, don't, I, I can't show weakness. Yeah, fucking. Maybe he's like the guy in a Mice and Men who keeps his hand in Vaseline because it's a fighting hand, you know? Yeah, Something yeah. Like that. What a cool little... It looks great. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a great choice. Yeah. It's just they said Michael Jackson would co-opt it a year later. Right. <laughs> Kirstie Alley is Savick. Is she better or worse than Robin Curtis who played Savick in Star Trek 3? I don't think she's better. I know we see more of Robin Curtis, don't we? We, see, hmm. we get we, we, her Savick. I just think with Kirstie Alley's sort of take on her... It almost feels like a different character with Robin Curtis and a yeah. better character. It's, it's yes. more kind of maybe it's because it's Kirstie Alley and maybe because we know maybe because Kirstie Alley is so well known now. I don't know. Maybe it takes you out. To, I'm not sure. This might be track sacrilege, but I actually think that Kirstie Alley is not Vulcan enough for me. She's not, but she's not Vulcan at all. As you know, she's half Romulan, half Vulcan, which explains some of the predication of her behavior. Uh, that's that. That was a con- canon, not necessarily laid into the movie, but it is canon. It's also why it allows her to cry at the end. It's because she's uh, uh, right. Say, yeah. she's, yeah. got, she's no. got Romulan parentage. Is it because uh, Valeris Valeris in Star Trek VI was originally supposed to be Savic? Was supposed to be Savic. So the fact that Valeris was half Vulcan, half right. Romulan. Is that something that's made clear in the film? No, it's right. off topic. It's off. So text. it's canon outside of the, the yeah. actual film itself. I mean, right. but Nick Nick Meyer meant it as such, and, and the thing is, Kirstie Alley was playing it as such as right. well. She was directed. It just wasn't made textual, which is Got really you. okay. You know, and if you look, if you're asking me, uh, I'm a big Kirstie Alley fan. I believe in Kirstie Alley. I thought Kirstie Alley when she came on to Cheers, which I don't think you guys watched. Oh yeah, we had. Oh, yeah. When oh, was yeah, it, we when had was Cheers. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. When she yeah. replaced uh, Shelley Long, uh, I, you know, no, no disrespect intended to Shelley Long, but I think Kirstie Alley is an incredible performer. I think she had comic chops that were fantastic. I think that she added something to this movie. I watched this around the same time as I saw her in Runaway with uh, Tom Selleck. You know, she came out of the box pretty strong. She was sexy. She was hungry. 
she gave a sort of combination of naivete and cunning and, and uh, you know, a little bit of calculation. She's cold. And I really like how cold she is. But the thing is, Kirstie Alley knew how to play for the camera. She looks like a film actor. She's got a sort of femme fatale look to her in the way that they mm. used to. She looks like a, you know, Barbara <laughs> Stanwyck or something like mm. that. And this was her first movie. She was she was hired out of nowhere to do this. Uh, she fought for the part. She really wanted to do it. She was a Star Trek fan. She was, uh, you know, you can listen to this. Hours and hours of her talking on uh, YouTube about it and all these uh, different Star Trek conventions. I think she did an incredible job. I think she synthesized the direction Nick Meyer gave her. And she, you, we really had not had, other than T'Pol or T'Pau in the original series, yeah, you hadn't yeah. had a lot of female Vulcans no. as archetypes. Yeah, and you know Mark Leonard wouldn't show up until the the third movie of yeah. this thing, and so even yeah. Spock's mother was human, wasn't she? Amanda, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's like uh, she was really forging her own way. I think she, I think she's, she's great in the part. And the question is, is she better than Robin Curtis? I love Robin Curtis, but I do think that Chris Daly is better than Robin Curtis. Why, why didn't she come back? She, apparently, she asked for too much, right? And that Robin Curtis was a TV actress. She yeah. did a lot of soaps. Fine actor, but I think there's a difference between somebody of Kirstie Alley's... Uh, uh, she did a lot of feature film work after this. You know? yeah, she yeah. started Three Men and a Baby with... Uh, uh, no, not Three Men and a Baby. She started Baby... Look who's talking. Look who's talking. That's a yeah. fucking baby thing. You get my point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but she had a feature film career and transitioned to Cheers. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, only when she got into Scientology, which she did to help her kick Coca, which, you know, I can't, I can't fault her for that. Uh, but she kind of became a Looney Tunes later on yeah. in her career. Mm. But this is hitting where the iron was hot. I really enjoyed her performance. Uh, maybe it is because she is so well. All of the actors are well known for playing their parts yeah. in Star Trek, whereas Kirstie Alley is Kirstie Alley, and maybe maybe she stands more like more, more to known me. to us probably for Cheers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah. and look who's talking. Yeah, classic. And <laughs> right, one of the like unfortunate little bits of trivia about the cast Billy Bash and Merrick Buttrick who played Carol and David Marcus they both died prematurely Bash died in 96 age just 54 but Buttrick was 29 when he died in 1989 wow. dead of AIDS yeah. yeah dead of AIDS yeah. so where do we go from then we've got he obviously Khan arrives at Ragula and then we don't see what happened how great it? is that yeah what a great choice to, you know like yeah. you, you, when when, when uh, what is it uh, who bumps into the body that's hanging is it Bones Bones yes yeah. I mean what a great you yeah. know it, it, again it, PG yeah, yeah. Hang your body with all blood all over. Covered with blood, blood hanging. Still... It's like it's like the pre- them finding the bodies of uh, Hopper's men yeah. in the jungle and Predator. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. awesome. Still, and he says, and Regal Mortis doesn't set in yet. Yeah, but before that, we've got we've <laughs> got awesome. um, fucking awesome. We, we've got a recreation of one of the best scenes from the motion oh. picture, where Sorry. we've got Kirk going back to the Enterprise. We see the Enterprise lit up, except it doesn't take eighteen minutes. No, no. <laughs> what I was going to say then was. A bit of Kirk overacting was when he's lowering down the body off the off the balcony, and he's his arm is outstretched, and he's he's putting it all is all yeah, into yeah, the yeah. coming down. Oh, his, his act, like, he's definitely doing Shakespeare blocking yeah, at that point. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. Yeah. Oh, the full oh. length of his arms are being used yeah. for that rope. So then I need every bit of tension. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Spock is commander of the Enterprise by this point, but Kirk, as an admiral, comes on board, and Spock very quickly relinquishes command because you, you presume from the point of I have any ego to, to bruise. But again, we've missed two of the best character moments in the film. San Francisco. Yes. McCoy bringing Kirk the birthday gift. Yes. The Romulan yes, yes. ale and... As he, was he, he was given the book by Spock, wasn't he? But yeah. Does McCoy bring him a book as well? No, he brings him... Spectacles. Spectacles. Of course spectacles, it is. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. They will, again. they will again. Yeah. 
So a, a lovely little, you know, plot device, the, 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 the spectacles that could crop up, and one of the main themes of, the, of this film, which is age. Well, this, and, this is the thing. This is not to take anything away from the motion picture, but it's, the, it's, it's these early sequences that, for me, if we didn't have the motion picture, it felt like this was checking back in with the characters yeah. 15 years later. It was a do-over in some ways. Yeah, and, yeah. It, and, and it was kind of, hmm. you know, you know, obviously... You know, Kirk's admiral now. Everyone has moved on. They've got their own commands and, and what have you. But it just felt like felt like the follow the follow on from the film. And obviously, mm. you know, as I say, not doing anything, taking anything away from the motion picture. But those little sequences were kind of reminding you and just letting you know that they're still close and they've got all the memories together. And and you know, but we're getting older now and yeah. using glasses and yeah. And it's too bad the original frames weren't intact. As I said, the lenses weren't intact. Yeah, which is awesome because you actually see them getting broken in this yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah. But you know that little exchange. The, the thing I love most about this original series, and then the films that followed, is that triangle of Kirk, Spock, yeah. and McCoy. I think it's the thing that just holds the series together and the, holds the films together. There's the bit at which I love when McCoy and Kirk and oh no, do you know? Do, you know, do I think I'm actually doing? It? I think I'm getting a confused with Space Seed because they go off to have a look, and Kirk uh, Spock says to be careful, and McCoy says, "Yeah, we both will." That's right. That's Yes. No, it, it's it, spacey. It's spacey. No, it's it's Rafa it? Khan. Where are they, they going? Well, they go down to regular. They go down to regular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, it's it's Rafa Khan. He says, be, yeah, be careful. Because yeah. We, yeah, we both will. And yeah. Because it's, it's again playing to that whole thing. Yeah. And we'll come, we'll come to this later on with the whole remember bit and the fact that McCoy was picked. Yes. That's a, what a fucking genius move that yeah. was. I'm D. Kelly, man. I, yeah. I could sell a line like nobody. And, and that, 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 By golly, Jim, I'm starting to think I could cure a rainy day. I'm a doctor and not a bricklayer. And again, let's go back to that later on when it comes to the line "He's dead already" because they were going to give that. He's dead they already. were going to give that to DeForest Kelly, and he said, "No, no." He said, "I, I can't, I can't have that line." If the line was going to be, "He's dead, Jim," and you know, yeah, as we later know, well worn yeah, material. Well worn. Yeah. So he said, and yeah. fair play to DeForest Kelly, he said, "I can't have that line because yeah. it's, it's going to come across almost like a, a piss take." Yeah, that's knowing your character. Actually. That is knowing your character. And there was so much of that in this film. Yeah. So yeah. much of it. Even from Nick Meyer, who didn't know the characters, essentially. Yeah. He knew characters. He though. had to have He had to have watched some of the original series to yeah, get... of course he, he did. He couldn't... No way could the guy be that astute to yeah. nail these characters, certainly in terms of the direction he's given them. Yeah, he was, he was an absolute. I think I knew what he was doing. So then, Kirk and the Enterprise, you know, headed... They headed Warp 5. Like, mm, you're in a rush together, but you're not in that much of a rush, <laughs> yeah. yeah? To get the regular one. It's a green crew, to be fair. Yeah, it's a green crew. Yeah. But, and then we've got that scene in the... And again, have you watched the director's cut of this? Yeah. I have is, watched the director's cut. You haven't. Can't know. Right, because the director's cut inserts a few extra scenes, which include, you know, the, 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 the young lad that gets brought on in, onto the bridge, this old... Is the order given? Yes. Right, that... Yes. In the director's cut, it's established that that is uh, Scotty's sister's nephew. Scotty's nephew. Right. Nepotism, baby. Yeah. He yeah. didn't earn Because it. it does stand out as, why would you take him to the bridge instead of the Medibate? Yeah. <laughs> and in, in the director's cut, there's this bit where Kirk says to this lad, he sort of asks a question about engineering, and, and he yeah. says, oh, you're, you know, we're in tip-top shape, Captain. And you know, anyone who can't see that is as blind as a Tiberian bat. Ensign and Preston. Yeah. yeah, Ensign Preston. And it's just like, uh, it, it's, a bit yeah. of, it's a bit of a clunky scene that you know, that young guy is not a particularly great actor and you know did we really need that in it but his death scene with the, the blood on the on the white yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. You know, just, but again we're going ahead of ourselves they go to regular they beam down you've got that horrific thing of them finding the bodies and then they open that cargo crate and we yes. find inside 
Captain Terrell and Chekhov. And then we've got, and, and this always threw me because no matter how many times I see it, the fact that they're being so open with with information, I'm like, well, are they still under control yeah, of the yeah, heels? Yeah, yeah. Because it, yeah, this is the genius of Khan. Yeah. Khan has said, when they arrive, you will tell them this. Yeah. Clearly this is something that was never filmed, it was never written, it was never shot, but it's implied. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just in awe of, of how well it's done. And it's that thing of Terrell is distant because he's just seen these poor people tortured and have yeah. their throats cut. He, he, was a, he, he went wild. He, he, he slit their throats. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, the way he delivers it is just, it, as, a, as a kid, it, it disturbed me. Yeah. They don't, they don't turn straight away, do they? They don't drop the act straight away. Is it, is there a bit? Oh no! They, they not until they get down on the. Um, that's when the space station. Once they get on the planet, they right. they, they the drop planet, the act. So that's right. Right. So then, what's the last phaser cord? The last transporter coordinates. Wherever where they went, yeah. 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 What, what's, what's that line that McCoy says to Kirk? Well, where are we going to go? Well, wherever they went. Well, what if the, wherever they went is nowhere? There'll be a short well, trip. This will be, no, be your, your, your thing. To, your, um, this will be your excuse to get away from it all. <laughs> what a fucking line! <laughs> Brilliant! Wow. They then, oh fuck, we've we've missed out the Genesis exposition because on the way to regular one, Kirk calls McCoy and Spock yes. into his quarters and, and he shows him that confidential or yeah. pacified, essentially a pitch deck. For, yeah, uh, yeah. A, a pitch for the Genesis project, mm-hmm. and we see what Harv Bennett and a few other people and Nick Myers say is the first use on the big screen of computer-generated facts. Now, this is something that is up for contention because, and I don't think they're wrong here, but Westworld was 73? Mm-hmm. Now, apparently, when Yul Brynner's character and the other, uh, well, I don't, I don't think we only ever see it from Yul Brynner's point of view, is walking around and you can see the humans in like a sort of heat vision thing, apparently that was CGI. I don't to this day think that that was CGI. No, that looked too, like some yeah, sort of way too early, yeah, taking film footage and putting An some overlay. optical yeah, overlay yeah. over yeah. it, be it animated or, or otherwise. Yeah. I yeah. do not to this day believe that is CGI because it doesn't look like any CGI we've ever seen. How about this? The question is, does uh, in the same year, does Rathacon beat Tron to the market? Yeah. Because Tron was shitloads of CGI. CGI. Not, I mean, a lot of people, what people think of as CGI and trying, a lot of it was done photographic. With, yeah, photographic but, effects with fluorescent. Yeah, yeah, there was actually a fair amount of CGI. Yeah, there was uh, a hell of a lot. Yeah. yeah. The, you know, the light cycles, the fly in things, while they are, the tanks the as well, spiders, CGI. The solar sailor, all those things. But, you know, this film came out the 4th of June. When did. I, I don't know for exactly. sure. That's why he may have a claim on it, depending, yeah. you know. But either way, you know, it was, it's clearly CGI and yeah. it was done by. Apple. Or, no, uh, uh, Pixar's a precursor. Yeah, well, yes. what, it would later become Pixar. Bear in mind, this is in the infancy of, of CGI. I remember back in 82, vaguely what computer graphics were like on home computers then. And you look at this now, yeah, it does look aged, but for the purpose of what it's telling you, I think it, it I think it works. Yeah. Because, it looks like a schematic. Yeah, yeah. and by, by the time we, bear in mind, you see this lifeless rock, you see the, torpe- the, 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 the Genesis thing hit it, Yeah. it then bursts into what, flames or whatever, Amendment. and then we see the landscape altering, being like, vastly terraformed really quickly and then it zooms out it looks like a matte painting of earth but i think that when you compare a lot of the technology that we're seeing in these films Hmm. that 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 do stand out as as aged this doesn't no we know that it is but i think that this is far more it's only ever supposed to be a simulation anyway yeah yeah and but it stands well uh next to all the, the motion control cameras like inside the movie it's perfectly of a milieu and you know it's yeah. like if it was something completely ridiculous the way uh, we mentioned this before about the burly brawl in, in the matrix reloaded 
is next to a lot of great actual physical work with actors shot on film, and then the CGI looks rubbery compared. It looks right. rubbery in its own film, yeah. because it's out of the milieu with how good some of the filmmaking that's done practical is. Yeah. In this case, the CGI is just as good, if not better, than the optical special effects that were done practicals with motion control and models yes. and things like that. Yeah. So it helps it. It's all of a piece. Yeah. So... But yeah, we, we've kind of skipped ahead. Going back then to when they get to the regular space station, the USS Reliant intercepts them. Slow to one half impulse power. Let's be friends. Slowing to one half impulse power. Reliant in our section, this quadrant and slower. Sir. May I quote General Order 12 on the approach of any vessel when communications have not been established? Lieutenant, the Admiral is well aware of the regulations. Aye, sir. Is it possible that comm systems fail? It would explain a great many things. They're requesting communication, sir. Let them meet static. They're still running with shields down. Of course, we are one big happy fleet. Ah, Kirk, my old friend. Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? It is very cold in space. Yellow alert. Energize defense fields. I'm getting a voice message. They say their chambers coil is overloading their comm system. Spock. Scanning. Their coil emissions are normal. They still haven't raised their shields. Raise ours. Their shields are going up. Lock phases on target. Locking phases on target. They're locking phases. Ray shields. Fire! Yes. And they get closer. They're, they're running silent. Yeah. And it's a Federation ship. They're and not responding to hailing. Hails, Captain. Yeah, and and then whacking doesn't he say to the country we raise our shields? No, no, we're one yeah. big happy fleet here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Khan just knows exactly how he needs yeah. to play this. And like I've said to you, Bill, and like I've said to Neil and the rest of them lately, it's that little line delivery by Kirk where he's like, "Damn peculiar, damn peculiar." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking, oh, I, that might be my favorite line delivery from Kirk in this film, and it's a little throwaway line, but it's the way he does it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's not up there, Kirk. It's it's down here. It's it's everything dialed down to a reasonable level. Yeah. It's like the Acheron and the HMS Surprise, isn't it? In um, Master and Commander, yeah. where they pull alongside and, and they they broadside them. Yeah, yeah. But the way the phasers hit is in a way you haven't seen before. No, because it's scoring into the. Yeah. It's not yes, one laser like, blast. It's, it's like a. It's like a laser cutter. Yeah. yeah it's like a, it's like an yeah. But you haven't actually seen carbon <coughs> carbon damage, like you said, scoring on a ship. Yeah. Where again, the cutting of the fact that the um, 
SFX were so good and practical, the only optical effects were the laser effects, but then cut together with the explosion inside the bulkhead, yeah. Yeah. really sells it. You yeah, see cause and effect. So practical like on-stage explosions, model work, yeah. and then optical effects with the yeah. laser, with the phases. It's the best of all combination, yeah. yeah. It really is. Yeah, it's, it really it's far is. more impressive than I remembered. But then it's, it's a bit where he says they're hailing us on screen. And then there's that exchange, and you know, as we've said, Ricardo Montalban and William Shatner never met in person. And yeah, calm, ah, you remember me, Captain? Yes, uh, I'm touched, but I, of course, remember you. And he's like, What's the purpose of this? I think I've made my purpose clear. I intend to avenge myself upon you. I've deprived you of power when I swing around, I will deprive you of your life. And it's like, fucking yeah. God, this is the fucking dialogue. Is but going back to Space Seed. They left on good terms, so you can completely understand Kirk's. Mm. Oh, no, I know they did. Yeah, but then this is stuff happening. He beating. did try to yeah. usurp his ship in space. And kill him. <laughs> and kill him, yeah. Like, it's like, it's like Chekhov says, didn't he, on Set the Alpha 5. He says, you tried to kill him. And yeah. Like, oh, it's trivial. What did he expect? <laughs> I am the superior intellect. And yeah, you know, there's that whole thing of Kirk's initial shock, which he quickly gets over, and he's like, fuck. You know, what can we do? And he's like, well, you know, there's that. What's the, the code that they use? The, um, oh, yeah. The, yeah. To prevent something like this. Yeah. And it's the perfect placing of Savek, who is a bit was a bit of a rookie, yeah. and she hasn't got the knowledge of the rest of them have got. It's like, you know, this sort of thing is to prevent what we're about to do, yeah. <laughs> which is basically hijacking. Yeah. The, it's like remotely controlling the Reliant. Yeah. yeah. And there's that thing when he's like, for 30 seconds, yeah. he's like, yeah. It takes a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Here it comes. Yeah, and then he says, here it comes. And it's the thing with the spectacles. Yeah. And he gets them out and he puts them on. He's like, puts them on the end of his nose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. on the end of his nose. Yeah, and it's done perfectly. And then you've got, you know, when they... How do, then, we, know, how do we know you keep your word? Uh, it quoted this through last night. I have given you no word to keep, Captain. Yes, yeah. Admiral. And then they, they drop the shields and whack him. He's like, our shields <laughs> are dropping. Raise them, I can't. Fire. <laughs> but they cut to his mouth. The, the insert is a shot to... This is a very irregular shot in this movie, and unlike anything that Nicholas Meyer did, it is a close-up, almost Tarantino-esque, of just his mouth as he says, fire. Yeah. And that's the only time you get something so impressionistic, mm. where yeah. it almost goes back to something like the 60s. Mm. And, I, you know, it's so weird. It just goes by because the action scene ticks by at such a yeah. great pace, yeah. but you don't pick out a frame like that, which is almost pop art. It's almost like a Liechtenstein painting or an etching in there. That's it's a great choice of framing. But obviously, you know, we we've discussed this all out of order. Then they go down to regular. They don't. They, no, they, limp, they, they limp. They go to regular, and and the thing yes. is, they pull the Enterprise yeah. on the dark side. Yeah, of the that's plan. right. Because right. both ships have been uh, out of commission temporarily. So then they're going into the core of the planet. Yes. Yeah. So they go into the core of the planet. Where well, are we at Chekhov and? Is that in the core of the right. planet? So they go into the core of the planet, and then as they beam down, they're immediately met with David, who ends up getting into a fist fight with Kirk. And then there's that thing where Kirk quite easily overpowers him because David's a scientist, Kirk's fought, fought the Gorn for fuck's sake. And then he's that, that thing where he stops dead in his tracks and he realises, like, he recognises, yeah. he looks like my, like my son would look. Yeah, tall with curly blonde hair. Curly blonde hair, yeah. <laughs> Naturally, as the jeans yeah. would do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it looks like a cross between me and Carol. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got you know that great exchange and he realises that his, it's his son and his whole demeanour changes from that point yeah. onwards. It's, it's like... This is business. Yeah, I didn't expect to meet Khan, but oh fuck, yeah. my son is now here. Which he should have realised. You know, if, if surely he's he sort of kept tabs on him, he must have. But you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe. But also, why would he be on the same detachment as his mother? Yeah. You know? Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. That's not necessarily obvious. And then we have the bit where Paul Winfield and Walter Koenig 
play their trump card yeah. and we realize they're still under control of the seti eel <sighs> paul winfield's acted in this is so good the way he's doesn't um david jumps in the way of kirk and then Terrell fires on one of the red coaters or, yes. or, or is it or is it one of the um regular one crew, one regular and, crew. and just vaporizes Revenge, him yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And there's that bit then where he's, he's he's done that and that clearly is horrified him, but he's fighting this thing and then he turns the phaser onto himself and just... Well, again, yeah. Paul Winfield struggling with the... Um, fighting off his battle inside yes. where he he's... He, the suggestion is one thing, but the only way out is to just disintegrate himself yeah. and watch yeah. as the, the phaser hits the ground. Yeah, which if he waited a moment longer... It probably would have worked this way out because, as as we see with Chekhov, it's like the fight kicked it out. Yeah, the fight kicked it out. Yeah, Yeah. you know, people. Paul Winfield. Paul Winfield. Again, I mentioned before, Paul Winfield was a great actor. Paul Winfield died. I want to say in like 2003, 2004. He died of, I think it was diabetes and obesity. He had a tough health at the end. He kind of ballooned up. He only came out of the closet, by the way, towards the end of his career, but he did a lot of like defining work in the 70s. He was in a movie called Sounder, which is an adaptation of a seminal American novel about sharecroppers in the South. Yeah. And him and Cicely Tyson were an incredible pair um, in that movie. And the thing is, Paul Winfield, one of the things he did is he, his character had this incredible dignity, this uh, possession in the moment. He also played Martin Luther King in a TV miniseries that was also a a great, great TV miniseries about King, um, which I'm repeating myself here. But And he was also in a Burt Reynolds movie uh, called Hustle from like 75 with Catherine Deneuve. I know, people haven't seen these no, things, but Paul Winfield it. has, if you get a chance to go back, pay attention to what this guy did. He's one of those great seminal American character actors that had a moment towards the 70s and early 80s, but his heat was off after that, which is too bad because we forget guys like that. They're yeah. real, real craftsmen and pros. There's no point in talking about the, the next bit without inserting the scene, is there? No, there's yeah. not. Con bloodsucker. You're gonna have to do your own dirty work now. Do you hear me? Do you? Kirk. Kirk, you're still alive, my old friend. Still old friend. You've managed to kill just about everyone else, but like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. Perhaps I no longer need to try. Oh no, the guy can't take it! Come. Khan, you've got Genesis. But you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. As you left her. Marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. So obviously that you know that moment where Kirk shouts Khan, it's iconic, isn't it? It is absolutely iconic. But 
the thing that's bothered me the last couple of years is it's not genuine, is it? Because Kirk knows from his exchange with Spock uh, via the... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He knows that, well, no, I've got the advantage. He may well have taken Genesis, but we're not crippled. Mm. And in two hours' time, they're going to be able to beat me up. I could easily believe that is genuine in the moment because he got skunked. It, 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 maybe there's an escape hatch, but that doesn't mean his bitterness at being skunked by... Khan. He did have lost. Yeah. I mean, you're talking... It, it, you would not want to hear what Khan's saying, and I can imagine responding in such a mm. way. It's cinematic. It's fine. But it's the way he switches off straight afterwards, and it, it's kind of like, mm, okay, then let's... Uh... But is it? But it's, but it's doing the job of of showing Khan that Khan had the upper hand. Yeah, but I still think he's acting to Khan. He's he's falsely letting you know, Khan if, think that he's If you want to believe that it, it's there, mm. I don't. I don't subscribe to it. I don't need it. Yeah. But I, you could, I could see what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, It's still fucking epic. Yeah, and it's at that point where Nick Meyer said, "Give me full Kirk." <laughs> Which yeah, we did. It's yeah. funny because the day after I watched Wrath of Khan, I was watching. I don't know whether you watch it, probably not. But Young Sheldon, I watched my wife. And there was an episode, one of the recent episodes they've shown. Um, he's going to Comic Con. There's, there's, he's watching a, he's watching a 1990s TV advert, watching a 1990s TV advert for this local Comic Con in the area of Texas that he lives. The, the slogan is such and such, such a comic, and then they use the clip of William Shatner. Comic Con. Con. <laughs> yeah. And it just absolutely creased me. And then it says William Shatner will not be appearing. <laughs> Do you remember in uh, in the critic the uh, cartoon series from the 1990s? Uh, they did the William Shatner chat show as a talk show. And he says, my guest tonight will be Rosie O'Donnell and James Gunn. <laughs> <laughs> the Simpsons had to have parodied this. I'm Surely. Sure. They parodied everything in the 207 years The Simpsons yeah, has been going. I have no doubt. And then you've got that beautiful moment where I think Kirk kind of says, you lot just fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> so leave me and Carl to have a chat. And, and you know, like, okay. <laughs> meanwhile, does say meanwhile that. check off all the time. He's lying there holding like a bandage to his ear. Uh, so he's listening to all of this, yeah. and then you know they go into the Genesis cave, and there's that that beautiful moment, and and with, with the line, you know, can I cook or can't I? Bill, where is that sunlight coming from? Because we're in a cave underground. Where's the sunlight coming from? What do you want from me? Is is it, is it a Dyson <laughs> sphere? Is it a, a contained Look, pulsar? What I gotta believe is that it is a um, artificial source of light that mimics. The outlay of the sun that was built on the planet. You know what? It's like of all the things inside Star Trek, that's what you're going to get caught up on is the fucking Orse Orse. No, you <laughs> you said you said when we talked about this, you said I've got my own version of where that head cannon head cannon. Yeah, hmm. I think it comes from there's a, a photonic source of light that mimics you know the, the waves of a star sunlight. You could easily say this technology that you can create a hydroponic greenhouse because they have there 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 were. Many examples in Star Trek of floating, floating greenhouses and floating herbariums yeah. and things like that. Yeah, that's not something you haven't seen I there think before. My version is, which I've come up with since, okay. is that if you follow that cave through to its thing, there is an, there is a part of what's it, what's it called regular yeah. that is blown out into space, and they literally just put a screen up to allow the light from the star to shine through. Mm-hmm. Which would kind of explain it. And I thought that I was being picky over the ear and the creature coming out of the ear. You were. You were. <laughs> oh, don't but worry, you on. certainly were. We're inside a planet and there's sunlight. Yeah, so you know, I get it. I get it. It, yeah. it, it, it didn't, it's not something that But I love that moment. And, you know, they, they, I think it was Nick Meyer said that he didn't particularly like how that like matte painting worked with all the waterfalls and stuff. And it oh, just I wasn't like what he intended. I think it works I, great. I, I it's, it's flat. I it's, mean, it's a romantic moment, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
I, I like the water, the waterfall effect, though. Yeah, that's yeah. the only thing that moves in it. But the rest yeah. of it, the rest of it has a sort of uh, one dimensionality yeah. to it mm. or two dimensionality to it. So then he sat there eating the apple when Kirsty Alley asks, "How did you beat the Kobayashi Maru?" And he explains what he did, and David's like, "He cheated." And he's like, "No, I changed the parameters of the test in order to, you know, I don't believe in the no-win scenario." And sorry, Trek purists, to bring in the 2009 Star Trek, but the bit where we see Chris Pine doing mm-hmm. the Kobayashi Maru, he's eating an apple. He's eating an apple. Yeah, yeah fucking lovely little callback. I yeah. love that. So then he flips up the um, communicator, and and Spock. You know, comes over the air saying, you know, we're ready to beam you up. And obviously they, they played the thing of... Anytime you run a monitor channel, you sort of speak yeah. a code, in yeah. other words. Yeah. yeah. So then, they, yeah, they're back on board the Enterprise. And then Khan comes around from, from regular and sees them yes. by, by the regular space station. Yeah, it's got that there. And Spock is. suggests they go into the nebula to make yeah. it a fair fight. Because if they don't have shields and they have, mo- they have uh, monitoring equipment, scanners will be useless inside the Mutar yeah. nebula. Yeah, and it source for the goose. Yeah, is the line because it evens the odds, doesn't it? Because yeah. it, it'll cripple their senses, but it'll also do the same to ours. But then we're on e- we're on even ground. Yeah. So then you know you've got that line from Spark. We are now entering the Mutara <laughs> Nebula, and it's it's like as if there's a gravity to it and a, and a, and a sense of drama. This is like is that really needed? Isn't that what the bus driver says? Like the yeah. queue when a, a subway says yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. This stop is the Mutara Nebula. Yeah. Please exit to the right. Yeah. So then they go into the Nebula, and then we've got. You know the big dogfight mm. and you know the, the big showdown where Kirk's skill and his expertise are going to go up against Khan's superior intellect. intellect. Now, this, unlike what you were saying about the Last Jedi, this is a slow speed chase that works because it actually yeah. manages tension, which yeah. is the what you want, and it manages this tension because you uh, your vision is obscured. You you get the impression you know as much as they do. So you you know the fact that each they're waiting till they appear on view screen. Yeah. Sorry, Bill. Two seconds. I've got a glass jar on the floor, and can you just put a pound in it because you mentioned that film which shall not be named. <laughs> it's, it's like a swear jar. Clink, clink, clink. Yeah, thank you. There you go. Put it back down. It's a euro coin. Is that all right? Oh yeah, that's fine. Okay, good. Perfectly fine. Sorry, go on. Uh, no, it's just that you know as much as they do because you're waiting to see what they can see, and the exterior shots are uh, singles of the spaceships. And yeah. Until Spock suggests that he uh, that. Khan uses uh, two-dimensional thinking, which, by the way, is a reference back to 3D chess. That's the two-dimensional part, is that the idea that 3D chess allows you to... There's a specific move called, like, a jump, where your player can move to the... Uh, you're on. You're playing on one surface, but you can skip over and above based on those... I mean, you yeah. know, I'm sure there's rules to it that I haven't checked. I'm sure yeah, there's... Yeah. But it's like he's suggesting we could use the, uh, the Z-axis. Did they play 3D chess in Space Seed? No. They didn't. But it was. But it was in... Not in Space Seed, but it was in the original, original series. series. Yeah. 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 I mean, right. that was just a, a piece of set dressing. Yeah. Thinking, oh, what would they play? Three-dimensional yeah. chess. Yeah. And this is the way Nick Meyer actually used it in such a way yeah. to make it useful as yeah. a callback. And, you know, we, we've seen it, haven't we, in, in countless... You look in Star Wars, they, there's like a two-dimensional thing. Apart from the attack on the Death Star, yeah. there is a two-dimensional level to the like the, the, the dogfight between the yeah. TIE yeah. fighters and the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. Whereas when we get to Empire, yeah, there's more of a... a they, they were now... Three dimensions. Three dimensions. Well, I think Jedi, the, the end battle from Jedi, really the first scene where the X-Wings and the TIE Fighters scatter off in di- different directions is yeah. the ultimate version. But, but, but I mean, when, he, when the Millennium Falcon is escaping the, the pincer move from yeah. the Star Destroyer, it, it, yeah. yeah, it, it goes down. Yeah, It goes down. And then you've, yeah. got, then you've got, well, hang on, we're no longer in two-dimensional space. Yeah. And obviously, you know, that film came before this, but it's that same way of thinking of, of how can we... We've already taken away the vastness of space by containing them in this nebula. There's there's a background to it. It seems a lot more enclosed. But no one can see each other. We can see the ships, but they can't detect each other. And you've got that thing where the static is, is 
just giving us enough. And then the Enterprise is bearing down on the Reliant, and then they fire on them, and and then you've got half torpedoes fire, and, and you know they miss, and you know there's not much you can say about this battle without actually showing it because it's all very much yeah, know, yeah, visual. Yeah. But it's the fact that you know in order to evade them, they've gone down beneath yeah. them, and it, it like Spock says, he is is. Two-dimensional thinking. Two-dimensional thinking. the undoing of, of yeah. Khan, yeah. And that's where Kirk and Spock's experience as captains you know, of, of a spaceship wins out. And, you know, they, they batter the shit out of out of the ship. Um, have I missed anything? No, missed the, anything only thing major, I, the only thing I would say is that there was a moment before they entered the nebula where Yoakum, who, you know, is a blind... He's, yes. a, he's, a, blind, he's a, what say, a blind adherent. He's a, he's a true yeah. believer. He does say yours is the you have nothing to yeah. prove you've tested you know like yeah. you've beaten him we, we've yeah. got a ship we can, we've got a ship yeah. we can do yeah. whatever we want we can conquer and, the, the universe yeah and Yoakum is Yoakum is, is almost trying to be the voice of reason yeah. saying and appealing to Khan and saying that yeah. you've already beaten him yeah. you know and it's like you've nothing to prove let's go on let's let's ourselves live let's not put ourselves yeah. in any more danger mm. and that's the beauty of it it's the fight between Yoakum's ver- words of reason and Khan knowing full well. You got to come down here, Con. Yeah. Con. You have to find me, like a bad marksman. You tasks keep, me. You test me, and I will have him. Yeah, yeah, that's it. it. It is the thing that's locked into the plot: the fact that it's not about beating him; it's about full-on destroying yeah, him in yeah. every way you can. About getting it. it's just a revenge to you know the way it plays out, and and you know the ship is crippled, but Khan has got he's got the final winning hand. He's got the Genesis device. Yeah. And the Enterprise, you know, it, it, it's not, it's now damaged to the point where they, they can't achieve warp. And then whacking, he, he, he gets killed by the, you know, the falling thing. And Khan <laughs> has nobody. The entire crew yeah. is dead. All, yeah. of his, all of his blind, uh, blind devotees are dead. Yeah. I will avenge you. Yeah. Yoakum, oh. I will avenge you. Yeah. By the way, the, the actor who played Yoakum, Judson, Judson Scott, goes mm-hmm. uncredited. And he was a thing for half a minute in the 80s. Uh, he started a TV show before this called The Phoenix, which was uh, on American TV. He was a sci-fi guy. He had a very sort of, you know, thin, long face with those long locks. He could have been almost like a in Xanadu, the, the Olivia Newton-John or, or, or movie. Starbuck yeah. Battlestar Galactica. Or Starbuck and Battlestar yeah, Galactica. Apollo. Yeah, yeah. And he had that look. But he looks a bit like Apollo. He does. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing. is, I mean, and... and his career really didn't go many places, but he was in some some hot work. He was even in V, I think, the TV series as it went oh, on. Right, the, yeah, one, not, the one we refused to watch. The one we refused to watch, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But he's interesting, you know, because again, he was such a big player. He's the only one of those guys who has lines. Yeah. He's yeah. got a lot of lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like he's like The uh, rest of them look like Rudy's from a bad prog rock band. Yeah. <laughs> Is there such thing as a bad prog rock band? I'm not sure. Who could say for a, sure? A bad one. A fictional bad one. All right. I don't know. But yeah, the, the if fact, such a thing existed. The fact that he goes uncredited is so bizarre. Um, when he actually he was a compelled, I yeah. can't. And he pounds the board. Yeah. You know? yeah. He gives him, he gives him good he does, he does. Yeah. So then, you know, the Reliant is is, is crippled and then Khan, with, with that gammy sort of total recall hand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you said you had six kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I ain't even married. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he then sets off the, uh, the Genesis device, and then you've got the countdown. And one bit that we we've yet to mention, we've talked about the effects. You know, we, we've talked about the casting. James Horner's score. Oh yeah. Oh. The reason I mention it at this point is because we, we've heard the bombast, we've heard the, the the ominous parts of the score. 
you've got the track that is called I think it's called something like Genesis Countdown which Genesis I think Countdown, it, it's yeah. the penultimate track on the I don't think it's like a complete score but it, it's the only one that the I release find. score yeah, the yeah. release score at the time right. and this basically goes through the whole range of James Horner's music in this film up into and including the, the, the final explosion where you know the Genesis device goes off yeah. and before we get too far the Enterprise has got warp speed back and then it, it it shoots off and then he brings it down to this this beautiful melodic sort of thing. No. No, you can't get away from hell's heart. I stab at thee for hate's sake. I spit my last breath at thee. Sir, the mains are back online. Mr. Scotty, go through! like a serene sort of melody as, as the Enterprise is just warping towards us and it doesn't happen just once it happens like two or three times that we see different cuts further and further out as it's escaping this oh, black it's, it's catharsis and it's it's that music coupled with that whooshing mm. warp effect and it just sends chills down my spine it is right. it's, it's, it's such a handsome way you know the way you um, between hyperspace or hyperspeed light speed in Star Wars and warp speed in Star Trek there's so many ways that they've shown those effects over the years. But, you know, like you could vary it up and mix it up and do it like um, Nick Meyer does, where it's almost like the rainbow effect of the, you know, the, when yeah. it's coming at you, yeah. especially if it's outrunning something. You've never seen well, light speed or warp speed being used yeah. to get yourself out of danger. Yeah. It's, a, it's been a transit feature before. So it's cathartic, it's this big element of a heave, and the music is underlining it yeah. as it's yeah. happening. So obviously quite rightly being like the uh, you know the the superior intellect Khan before his ship was badly damaged he actually went back at the the Enterprise's engineering section again and caused havoc down there. By the way, you know you mentioned uh, the thing about Khan. One of the things I loved, and maybe the last two times I watched this, something I always loved is the prop 
of the Genesis device, mm. the activation is so great. You know, the prop department comes up with the, the circular stuff. thing. Yeah, the, yeah. What it think is it's, it's concentric circles, yeah. and it, it's like you twist and it goes yeah. down. Yeah, and you twist and it goes down. It's like what somebody had to think of that. Mm. And I, I just had this as boilerplate my whole life. Yeah, and it's like wow, someone thought of that. A oh, wait, like what is a failsafe that you don't accidentally set this fucker yeah. off? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like yeah. Having yeah. to twist three or four concentric circles and push yeah. in yeah. is a pretty goddamn good way to do that. Or it'd be easy just to input a code. <laughs> But it looks cool. It looks so cool, <laughs> especially so cool. as he's struggling. Yeah, because he's he's all yeah. he's all mangled. His face is screwed yeah. up. He's got yeah. the blood his face, on. the makeup on his face. Yes, yeah, really, which really. I haven't watched this in not even 1080p. I've watched uh, my 2002 DVD copy, but it's it still the makeup looks great. Oh, it looks incredible. Really, and, and that's when he's he's there uh, cursing, uh, you know, from from. As as it's counting down, he's sitting there extolling this thing like I'm yeah. cursed from hell's heart. What is it? Hell's from hell's um, yeah, go on. There's that um, yeah. poetic <clears throat> line that he delivers. Of course, yeah. As he says, "To the last, I will grapple with thee. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath." He literally is spitting that yeah. line, isn't he? Yeah. But he makes it sound like there's a difference between screenwriting and you know what a character like. There's typing on a page, and there's what a character says, yeah. you know. And it's like this is arch arch dialogue that he lifts out of thing. You know, you didn't mention before at the very beginning, by the way. There's a copy of Moby Dick on the shelf yeah. in the Botany Bay. Yeah. It is there just as a piece of set dressing, but it's like Meyer made sure that he did his bookkeeping, literal and figurative in this case, to make sure that these references didn't just come out of nowhere. And right. when Kirk quotes really Dickens, when Kirk, what is it? it is a far braver thing than I ever do. I forget what uh, Kirk's line from... Um, it's a braver thing that I ever do than... I've ever done. I, yeah, 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 exactly. Those lines, yeah. Uh, yeah. Th those are all based on the books that you see. In, yeah, in the, yeah. It, it not just references pulled out of the air. No. But thank God they are. Even if yeah. they were pulled out of the air, they would have been great. And Montalban delivers them. And by that, the point in the film where they're being delivered, where he's all mangled and he's literally, this is, he is spitting his last breath, essentially, isn't he? Mm -hmm. And he's, he's, he's won. He's beaten them. Yeah. And even though he hasn't he's scorching really, the earth and there's no earth yeah, to scorch. In yeah. a way, given the sacrifice that follows, and like I said to you, Rich, and I'm going to, again, cards on the table. There is no film that we've ever discussed on this podcast that gets me as emotional as this film. I don't know what it is, because ultimately it's the sacrifice of Spock that is the, the catalyst of how it makes me feel, but he comes back. Yeah. And I've always known he comes back, because I don't think I ever saw this film without knowing that the third film was Search for Spock. Yeah, yeah. I was too That's young true. to watch it in the yeah, cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't change the fact that it's all done so well. And you've got that bit where Kirk says, Scotty, you, you better you know, get us warp speed in three minutes or we're all dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. talking about pressure. <laughs> when Scotty says, Captain, I think you better come down. Oh, don't. Uh, McCoy no, says that. No, but it's before that, isn't it? It's the bit where Spock yeah. turns on his chair yeah. and you can see he's not looking at anyone in particular, but he's like, yeah, there's only one thing like yeah. I'm Vulcan. I'm probably the more, most durable out of I can, anyone. I can put up with the radiation I, I, yeah. before yeah. I die. Yeah. 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 So then he goes into engineering, and it, it's the thing that by this point Scotty's out. Yeah, he's he's collapsed because of the radiation. Yeah. And then he says, you know, he says to McCoy what he's going to do, and, so and go in there to kill you, Spock. kill you. Yeah, and but even right. then he he doesn't back down yet. He's right, like, oh, right, you, you know, I'm not human. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, no, perhaps you're right. And then what is was what's the condition of um, of <laughs> of Mr. Scott? Yeah. Well, he's and then he does the, the Vulcan oh, yeah, neck yeah, pinch. Yeah. I, have, I don't have time to debate uh, logic with you. That's true. <laughs> and then he does the thing. And this is something that Star Trek 3 wasn't even an idea at this point. Nick Meyer, 
he didn't even want you know the, the you know the, the whole thing was was basically against what he wanted because Maya declined coming back for three because he didn't agree at all. So was it Harvey Bennett mandated? Harvey Bennett yeah, said, he, get in there he, and do this. Well, because they realised that track without Spock isn't track, yeah. I think. And the idea of bringing Spock back is not something Maya wanted, which makes sense from his point of view. It's from a storytelling perspective, it undoes all the good work he did in creating yes. this emotional gut punch at the end of this film. Yeah. But it's also cryptic. I mean, granted, we're we're you know we're beyond looking glass here. We don't know what it was like to not have three imminent, always yeah. available. We get to look at it like a comic book series where it's just the next issue that was always available to us. Yeah. But, but even then, when the intention was for this to be Spock's final hour, they still put that thing, they built that thing into it. As you mentioned earlier, Bill, you know, off mic, what a bit of foresight that was. Just And, and the fact that they picked McCoy, the one with whom Spock has always had the, that friction. Mm-hmm. and yeah. The allergy to logic that yeah. McCoy has. Yeah, because yeah. McCoy, you know, is... As Spock says in this film, he says, uh, you know, Doctor, you really must get a control of your emotions. It will be your undoing. <laughs> and he chooses him yeah. because out of circumstance, because he's the only one conscious and still yeah. able to. And, and Christ, he doesn't know Scotty might die. He puts the, the consciousness into him and we don't even see what he's doing. No. He just no. says, remember. It was something yeah. they figured out later. Yeah. yeah. And we've already, like I said to you again, Bill, off mic, the fact that we've had this set up because Genesis is life from death. And again, that's all set up as, mm. as what the third film will become. But it doesn't take anything away from the fact that this whole final act with him going into the reactor thing, and then at that point, but, Scotty, he, 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 he wakes up out of his, you know, whatever it was, and, and is trying to stop him doing it. Yeah. It, it, just, it just gets me every time. Well done, Scotty. Jim, I think you better get down here. Bones? Better. Hurry. Savick, take the car. He's dead already. It's too late. And, and the way that he's struggling, he, he, you know, that, that, whatever it is, some sort of, it's not the warp reactor, is it? It's not the no, warp it's warp. something, I mean, that's true. It's nothing we've ever seen yeah. after that, but no. it, actually it's a very good representation in that you, you kind of get what the stakes are. The light is off of it. I mean, the, the lid is off of this thing. You know, in a way, I thought this was what radiation was when yeah. I was a kid. I thought it was a blue yeah, light yeah, yeah. that emanated well, in a straight cone. For anyone who has seen the Chernobyl uh, dramatization... Actually, it has a lot to do when with you it, look, yeah. When they show briefly them looking down into that reactor, it's, it's that's like, what it looks it's like. It's an icy blue light that yeah. hits vertical. Yeah, that yeah. is exactly what like this... Like So it looks like it's, it's some sort of radiation that's yeah. been established. Clearly he needs the gloves. <laughs> yeah, the gloves help, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe his hands would have quite literally... Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Gone. Yeah. We were talking about with the sequel coming. Obviously, the, the tease at the end with the coffin on on, on the planet. So my qu- my query was where that came into it because if if it was at that point there was no plan for a third, or you know, it wasn't written there was going to be a third, 
that we still had that little kind of yeah. glimmer of hope that that meant something. At well, the it was end. pure so, setup, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and none of the actors had to be involved in it, which is why they didn't have yeah. to. Run, they didn't. Yeah. They weren't going to piss yeah. off Nimoy no. by doing that because that was an effect exactly. shot later yeah. on yeah. somewhere else with the second yeah. unit. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And obviously, we'll go into that at some point later in the future yeah. when we cover the third film, which I think you know, it would be wise to do given in the fact that we've done one now. or two. Yeah, <laughs> I'm ready to go. So. Then we've got the bit on the bridge where Kirk says, you know, they, they hit warp speeds. You've got a beautiful bit with them just running away from the... And the bit before, doing the countdown. And I think it's a line from Sulu where he's like, we're not going to make, gonna it. make it. Yeah. And David's like going, no, we're fucked. And, yeah. But have you, have you seen what Kirk's doing? He's sat there with his arms folded and yeah. it's not something I've seen from him before. And it's not the sort of him holding onto the arms of the captain's yeah. chair. He's there in this sort of weird non... That's interesting. I don't know if I paid attention to that. Yeah, he's yeah. there like this, and it's, it's, that's not typical he's, Kirk. He's brooding. He's yeah. brooding because he, yeah. he thinks he was. He thinks he thinks he's lost. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's not something he's dealt with before. Yeah. So he's not acting in the way that we've seen him it's act the, before. It's the Kobayashi uh, Maru, and it's, uh, yeah. Spark is the one who reprograms. Yeah, it, changes the rules. Yeah. He does. Yeah, and then Jim. I think you Jim him down yeah, here. Yeah. Think about yeah. yeah. And yeah. it was the tone of his voice that he knows. He and yeah. then they cut back. Looks the empty chair. The empty chair. He knows. Oh God, we're fucked. Yeah. And then it's at that point when he goes into the, what do we call it, engineering reactor room. Yeah. Sir. Sir. He's dead already. Oh, dead the already. line from, it's, it's, it's dealt with, I don't want to say callousness, but it's like, Jesus, no, Scotty, come on. It's finality. It's yeah, finality. It's, it's like, yeah, yeah, if you go in there, you're dead because he is already yeah, yeah. dead. That's what it is, yeah. yeah. And, you know, like I said, that, that was going to be DeForest Kelly that was going to be given that line. And he, no, Jimmy Doohan did he a great job over with that James line reading. Yeah. Oh, well, we've God, already seen grief for them as well because with the, with the yeah, you with know, the, before, he played that really well as well. because yeah. his nephew. Yeah. yeah, because with not knowing that it was his nephew, what you got from that was it was that he cared so much about the, yeah. the youngsters that were working with him. Crew, yeah. and, they, and, and he stayed till the end, didn't he? He, you know, he, he, didn't he stayed at his post while yeah, others like, ran. He yeah. stayed at so his that area. line is still in the theatrical cut, yeah. right? Yeah. That's true, oh, because great. I mean, the beginning, they said this was pretty much like a student crew almost. Yeah. Like, yeah. They, these were like interns, the B yeah. team that was getting ready. Yeah. So he would have been proud either way, yeah. whether or not there was a familial connection. Nepotism, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Then again, one of many of my favorite moments in this film is the bit where he's obviously behind the the, the purse specs or whatever it is and he sh he's shouting spark but we're inside that now and yes. we can't hear it and he realizes oh, that yeah. and he looks to the intercom and a shout out to moose matson who did a perfect recreation of this on twitter and yesterday he turned, yeah he speaks quietly until they turns the intercom and on from our point of view it's it's silent and then he hits the thing is spark and the way that's done that little touch yeah. is this something that didn't need to be put in and and what does nimoy do in this scene that is such a great oh. bit of business nimoy stands up and he pulls he straightens, he straightens his yes, tunic down yes he does as he he's is. literally probably melting from the inside out yeah anyone again has seen the Chernobyl documentary the dying from ex extreme right. exposure yeah. to radiation is one of the worst ways you can go yeah. and he gets up but he, he straightens his tunic yeah. by that point I am literally like biting my fist <laughs> not to break in, into a, an emotional mess and it, it's just too much it is uh, how about too right, much for me the, the, my friend always says this to me when we you know when we watch it is that Nimoy uh, approaches the perspex, I guess we call it that, yeah. and he hits it, and he actually leaves a smudge yeah. in the makeup, yeah. which, you know, he always says, yeah, part of his nose hits yeah. it. And yeah. it's obviously the pancake they put on his face, but you couldn't believe it. That he's melting. He's discombobulated. Yeah, 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 yeah that yeah. is some tissue. That's actually Vulcan skin he's, that hits He's it. Emil from Robocop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Get off me, man. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like, that could make that scene go a whole different way, couldn't it? Yeah. If the perspex wasn't there, don't touch me, man. <laughs> I want that noise. <laughs> <laughs> so then 
he's blind as well. Oh, That's yeah. why he walks into the into the. That's right. Yeah. Because oh, he's yeah, blind. Yeah. Because when clearly addled and blind. One of the yeah, first yeah. things to go would be his vision if yeah. he's being. Well, he was looking in. He was his face. Yeah, was looking right. Into looking into he got yeah, so he's blind, and I haven't always been conscious of that. But then, re- on like one of the last one or two viewings of it, it's like. Jesus, the poor guy's melting. He's also blind. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's spending his last moments. You can't even see his friend. Who yeah. he's, he's that exchange between them. Ship out of danger. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, he's he's gone. He's he's slumped down mm. and he's dead. And I like the way he slumps down. And, and it's he, the, it's the no from Kirk. No. Oh. Yeah, you know that that that's a real problem area. Is that like I know Meyer at that point must have been thinking, Christ, how do I how do I thread the needle with uh, you know I did so many great things with Shatner, and who knows what order they shot this in? The emotional yeah, yeah. tenor was up yeah, and down. Yeah. Right? But it's like he had to figure out how do I have his best friend dying, and how do I still maintain the same tenor of honesty mm. in a way where he's been restrained at different different parts, you know? And it, it's really difficult to see what kind of line reading should he give. Every time, you know, whether it's the funeral in a scene or if it's this, it's so much modulation of what is still like. We all know the less is going to say more because you know that's Kirk still being a company man. Yeah, he's still being the admiral of the ship. And and how Bennett talks about how the, you know the preview audience for this film was just dumbstruck into silence with this this downer ended. Yeah, and then we we cut to the um the the the, the funeral. Yeah, if you want to call it the, the funeral at sea. Amazing Grace. And yeah, ama- oh, Amazing Grace. Can't ever hear that without thinking of this. I know, especially on the, on the bagpipes. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the triggers. Just one yeah. of the triggers. And why the bagpipes? Well, why not? It's naval. And we, yeah. we've now we're fully on board with. I think Scotty had bagpipes in his room in his quarters. Yeah, so go that, that was established with that. canon. He does. It, it just, Scottish. Yeah. Either way, it just works, isn't it? Because yeah, it's got that naval feel to it. Yeah. And uh, mm. William Shatner's performance in the delivery of his final eulogy of his friend. We are assembled here today pay final respects to our honored dead. And yet it should be noted that in the midst of our sorrow, this death takes place in the shadow of new life, the sunrise of a new world, a world that our beloved comrade gave his life to protect and nourish. He did not feel this sacrifice a vain or empty one. And we will not debate his profound wisdom at these proceedings. Of my friend, I can only say this. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most... human. Others?
and it's it's just perfect, absolutely perfect. And, and I, it doesn't come across to me as cheesy or schmaltzy or anything like that. It's no, it's just doesn't. genuine. Because again, because of his measured performance throughout, because yeah. he's not over, he's not chewing the scenery, so it doesn't yeah. feel like it's the culmination of his it's, overacting. It's, everything's in the shadow of him yelling Khan, but then it's all of the textures beneath that, and the way in which he exhibits um, uh, disappointment, uh, being thwarted, sadness, pride, yeah. and he, as he says when he's looking at the Genesis planet, it makes you feel young again. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's like even that like when has, the world was new, when the world was new, or when the world was young. Yeah. yeah, when the world was yeah. young. But yeah. it's the idea that he still has room inside. He, he's got to have a lot of room in his budget. The, the Captain Kirk, I'm saying, has to have room for all these states. He still has to go back out and do a man's job. Yes. Yeah. So he still has to be able to look out and appreciate what the Genesis planet mm-hmm. means. Yeah. And that's when he says something. Again, that also is a haunting. It makes you feel young is when the world was new. Yeah. You know? yeah. That's a haunting line reading. Yeah. yeah. And it's also the thing, he's, he's lost his best friend, but he's also, and it compounds the tragedy of three, he's found his son, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. And he's like, oh, God. See, there's a new added bit which just tears into me now is the fact that now that, and I have been like, you know, for quite some time, I'm a father. When I was younger and I would watch this, it wouldn't have the same effect on me. But it's the bit where David goes into his quarters and he says, yes. Yeah. I was wrong about you. And I'm sorry. Is that what you came here to say? Mainly. And also that I'm proud. Very proud to be your son. Yes. And it's... you know, Rich, as you would know now being a father, there's a different angle to this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I can't imagine what it would be to have a son which just crops up, you know, age, whatever he is, 26 or whatever. Fully formed. Fully formed, And yeah. antagonistic too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, to, and, and, and then have him come to you and tell him that he is proud to be your son. He comforts yeah. him and shows, as Kirk's the weak, not, not weak... He shows weakness, but he shows it in vulnerability. Vulnerability. That's what I mean. Or weakness. Yeah, yeah completely. Yeah. Because he needs that hug. Have that we hug ever seen him, him show that kind of emotion as Captain Kirk by this point? Well, there's been no room for this type of emotion. No. He's 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 had love. He's had romance. He's had all these things along yeah. the way. But this 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 feature has never been a part of uh, Kirk's repertoire. Yeah. No. So no, this is a new exhibition. This yeah. is a new evidence. A and, new room. That's another part of the film then that, that just gets me going again. Mm. And then you've you, you've got the final bit on the bridge. They're looking at you know this Genesis planet, and doesn't Kirk say you know we, we should come back here and uh, they've yeah. got to go get the they've got to go rescue the the crew the crew of the Reliant, and then they're going to come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, obviously the the crew of the Reliant were um, dumped stuck on stuck on the they're in the, they're in the carpet. Fight. Yeah, fighting that freaking uh, city. But at least we know reading uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> reading Moby Dick. There's nothing here to read but Moby Dick and books to read. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, stay away from the The annotate, yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the, the Penguin Classics put, put Library some, uh, of Khan. Put some cotton wool in your ears, just in case, <laughs> just yeah? Just in case. <sighs> some eardrops. Do you get an ache in your ear when you think of it? When I think of... Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's well, horrible. I, it's just, I do. What is that about? Oh, How can Again, it get... because there, there's there's only a few places in your body that have the... That, that, you know, that have... Getting kicked in the balls is one of yeah. them. I would say having something stuck down your throat and have your gag yeah. reflex, it's involuntary. But if, and oh, a tooth too. Like when you yeah, watch yeah. Marathon yeah. Man, that fucks you up. Right. Yeah, but when I watch Marathon Man and he's exposing that nerve and whatever, it's 
I don't feel it. But when I see that set the eel oh. going in, I feel it. It aches yeah. inside my ear. As a kid, were you told about earwigs? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we yeah. all were. Yes. Yeah. So this is so it's that thing, yeah. isn't it? Because they can't get out. They just fucking keep going. And, oh, and that's and the, and now when you have ear infection. Yeah. Yeah. My, my eight year old, we were in the garden recently, and I uncovered one. And he said, "Dad, why are they called earwigs?" I said, "Right, anyway, pass me that uh, little <laughs> shovel. I'm not going down that. I'm not no. doing that. No, genuinely, yeah. I don't f- don't even d- d- don't worry because." Uh, yeah, anyway, so what's, oh, look at that, a frog. Oh, oh, look, yeah. oh look at it, uh, look at the eagle. Just it's, yeah, don't, it's, it's fucking that, go there. Don't is, go it's there. It's that thing of, you can't get your finger in there to get it out. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Nick Meyer, what the hell? Zing. And then, you know, we see the, the torpedo coffin on the newly formed Genesis planet, and then for the first time in Star Trek, it's Spock giving the yes. famous space, the final frontier voiceover. Yeah. A beautiful choice to pick him. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it was um, like the LA uh, herbarium or some sort of arboretum garden, wherever they actually shot that, they had real ferns. Yeah. And they must have waited until the light crept out at exactly <laughs> the right part. That must have been a second unit shoot somewhere in yeah. Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm always curious, like, what was it the, the yeah, botanical garden somewhere in like Alameda? So the film was released on June 4th, 1982, which at the time of recording, we're almost there. We're, the, we're almost bang on the 40th anniversary of this film. The budget was an estimated $11,200,000 and it made a worldwide gross of $78 million, which wow. that's a good return. Yeah, yeah. We, we are still talking 1982 figures. Yeah. It was a hell of a lot more successful, I think, than... It made the, less money than motion picture. But, it, but obviously the motion picture's budget was three times as much, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, and you talk about all time in terms of like uh, road shows and and, and, yeah. and and home video and syndication. I think this performed better. That's just theatrical, but this has yeah. had longer legs than any of their films, with the exception of maybe The Voyage Home. Right. Yeah. Rich, what's your final thoughts then on Star Trek: Through the Wrath of Khan? I'm um, going back to it. It 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 just reaffirmed why what I knew that I loved about the film and, yeah. and uh, it's been a number of years it's probably been a decade since I watched it last and I only watched it two or three nights ago mm. what struck me and I think I said to you what, what struck me with it was in no disrespect to any of the lead cast how old they were and you would not and, and when you think this was this was the second film mm. of six where they would all be yeah. and you wouldn't get that now without there being some kind of reference to the fact mm. that they're old I know we had Kirk with the glasses and it was yeah. almost played upon but the fact is that they they aren't they aren't giving way to the younger cast. They aren't giving away to the younger crew. No. They are the they are the main cast, mm. and they continue to be there. I know we have side characters come in, but it struck me how particularly DeForest Kelly, yeah. how old they were and how old they looked. It, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't something that they, mm. that, they that, that they played with. I want to watch Star Trek three and Star Trek four now. It, it, it's it's that. It's got me back yeah. into Welcome it. Welcome to my world. Mm. It's, it's I just think it's, it, it's, it's, it's absolutely great. I want to watch the, those three more now than what I want to go back and revisit the motion picture. I just love this era of Star Trek. Yeah. I love it. I love, like I say, this this was my gateway into Star Star Trek. I love the uniforms. I love the I love the the, um, the Enterprise. I love the the relationship between the characters. They you know they've lived long lives. They've done so much. They've got this. They've got this relationship that not only exists. It's not a false relationship that's on screen where mm. they've got older actors who are playing older characters. We believe that they were together twenty years ago, yeah. and and they've lived it. And, and and I just think it comes through. It, it comes screaming off the off the screen. Mm. You know, I, I played my cards early. This is, and I mentioned to you and the guys, Bill, on on one of the groups yesterday that. I genuinely think that this film has to have a place in my all-time top 10 favourite films. It has to. Something from Star Trek does. And they are Star Trek... I've made clear my love of Star Trek Generations, which I know isn't 
everyone any isn't probably anyone's favorite star trek film i know neil loves it but i don't think it's going to be anyone's favorite trek film you know for, for a great number of people but i've made clear why i love that film and there's parallels with this film as well it's the exploring the finite nature of our existence and this film obviously focuses a lot on the thing of of age mm. and regretting life decisions you've made which is something that's carried on in in, in generations and it's something that always appeals to me and it's one of the things about Blade Runner, about the finite existence of Roy Batty and these these replicants, which again makes you know that film so poignant. But then you've also got just my God, the, you know, the dialogue. It's like how much over the last couple of days have we quoted this film to each other amongst us and other friends? It, it's it's just it's a step above the motion picture for me. It's several steps above, because like I said to you earlier, Bill, I don't as a rule quote the motion picture in anywhere near the same degree that I quote this in like everyday life and conversations that me and Neil and like other film friends who, who love Trek of we'll always come back to this film as being I think the best of all of the, the motion pictures I think for me I've got to say it you know on the motion picture episode we did our five favorite episodes of Star Trek and we purposely kept the films out I think the reason we did that is because I, I think it wouldn't be fair to compare some of these films to some of the episodes mm. and, and their entities different yeah because because it's a, it's a whole different thing with the, the you know the budgets and and you know the, the things which these films have been afforded and the time period they were made in as well yeah and, and you know this was far you know far from being the the biggest budget of any of the track mm. films and not the most successful because i think financially star trek four, four. Yeah. is still but i think you know quentin tarantino said at one point that star trek to the wrath of god is one of the greatest films ever made and i think when he said it people kind of Really, you, this hot auteur film director of yeah. Hollywood, this young and uh, young up and camera, and making this statement. I think that wasn't a comment he made early in his career, and I can't remember when he, he first came out and said that. But when he did, certain people like me were like, "Yeah, hell yeah, I fully not agree." A, not a stretch at all. No, yeah, no. And there's certain things when I think about this film that I, I think I, I do regret the fact that Uhura and Sulu don't get their roles expanded because obviously they had you know something they had to give. But then if you look at this lovely trilogy of two, three, and four. They do get their moments to yeah, shine in in you know there's a bit where they where they're stealing the Enterprise. Don't call me tiny. Don't call me tiny. <laughs> it's fucking golden, George Takai. And then there's the bits <laughs> where all it. of them get to shine on Earth in uh, you know in, in in Star Trek Four. Yeah. Not forgetting Uhura's dancing fight. <laughs> yeah. God. But anyway, probably one of the captains. Yeah, I digress, yeah. but you know. <laughs> Some of the shortcomings in this film are made up for in the other parts of what we call this unofficial trilogy of two, three, and four. But, you know, like I said, I, I think it is one of the greatest films ever made. I watch this film and it just moves me t to my core. That's worthy. You know, I, this movie makes me think of two things in particular. The first one is that it's not a matter of quotable dialogue, which it certainly is. But if you listen to the character of the screenwriting that Nick Meyer committed to the page and he directed his actors to do, it brings back the idea of... The quality of the words people speak, not merely the plot and the story and the direction, but the actual character of the language that they mm. speak. This is a literate script. It's a, it's a Star Trek script for a pop movie that came out in 82. However, he smuggles in a lot of great language. And there are some films in particular, this is around the time where that kind of thing began to dim and decline, but the quality of screenwriting is now at such a pitiable level in our, you know, especially in English language screenwriting, 
it is designed for a 10-year-old child yeah. without yeah. any schooling. There's no vocabulary. There's no themes. There's no mm. metaphor. There's no motifs. It is very presentational yeah. language where people walk on and yell the thing that's happening behind them. Yeah. This movie is large of the quotes, but the actual character of the language is beautiful. In, in When Spock is talking to Kirk in his quarters, the way in which, the way in which you understand that Spock has a very highfalutin argot, but the thing is the words that he says, the actual quality of the language is beautiful, where he says, you know, you're... Uh, your first best destiny is captain of a starship. Anything else is, I think, a waste of material. There's things like that that yeah. are so elegant and so precise. And people could spend their entire lives trying to you know, write these words and they, they can't do it. Now, here's the second thing I'm going to say. Watching, I did go down a rabbit hole. I watched all these movies over again in a row. And it made me think that you know something very strange about these movies is that the production of all of them was a complete fiasco. There was a tug of war from the genesis of Star Trek the motion picture all the way to Star Trek VI. Not as much heat on Star Trek VI because they knew they were bringing it to a close. But there was never a clean idea of we're kicking into a next one. It was always decisions made in the interim between right. films whether or not to greenlight the next ones. And the direction was never clear. And who was going to be involved was never clear. And Gene Roddenberry was kicked off the franchise after motion picture because he was too much of a pain in the ass for Paramount Brass. And the thing is, with all these things keeping Star Trek uh, from being clean and uh, literal and advancing itself, it manages to make this masterful transition from movie to movie to movie without... You know, other than Harvey Bennett, and that leads over to Ralph Winter later on, these movies had no plan, and yet somehow they succeed. Yeah. And if you look, for instance, all the bullshit we're giving Lucasfilm for making these Star Wars movies without any kind of plan, and they crashed and burned, they fell to the ground. It can be done yeah. if it's haphazard, if you have enough talented people, and you're figuring your way out through it, and you have enough inspiration. And again, maybe it helps this was the early 80s. There wasn't as much pressure to put these things out as there is today. But you cannot... Ha I mean, it's, it, it's a miracle at the same time that these movies lead into each other because they were never clearly going to get one after yeah, the other. Yeah. It was made up on the spot. But it's amazing that they do coalesce so well yeah. without a plan. That is fucking magic. Yeah, definitely. So, Bill, thank you finally. You know, we've spent, you know, the, you know, the last couple of days, you know, finally, you know, catching up with you in the flesh. It's been, it's been awesome and it's been great to finally record in the flesh with you. And it had to be this film, didn't it? I think yeah. it was always going to be this film. Yeah, this was the one. Certainly and as much as the last two years and what's happened, uh, you kind of got in the way and we never got to see the film with you know, William Shatner. Yeah. That's how things went, and you know we've now done it in time for the 40th anniversary. No, of the it's film. it's a real pleasure. 40 yeah. years old. This is wow. special to do this. This this film means something. This isn't like fucking Chinatown. The rest of the garbage we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> this actually means something. <laughs> so, Bill, where can people hit you up on social media to remind you of the fact that you once said the Star Trek the motion picture was your favorite Star Trek film, and that you were in fact wrong? I'm on Twitter at William Scurry. Uh, I'm always there. Uh, you can look for my podcast. I don't get it, which is available on all fine podcast aggregators. And our Twitter handle for that is at Noah and Bill Show. I'm there all the time. Take a look at me. Yeah, I'm on Twitter sometimes, occasionally at Richard underscore Roberts, and you can get me by the site. Yeah, and yeah, please check out the site filmit9.co.uk. Um, if you've got any suggestions for future episodes or you want to comment on a you know on a private sort of thing to us about this episode or any of the others, it's admin at filmit9.co.uk if you want to email us. And we're on Twitter and Facebook at filmit9uk. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, and I think that's it. That's it. 
Please, if you've enjoyed this episode, um, if you haven't already, give, give us a like, a subscribe, or on whatever your podcast platform of choice is. And if that does happen to be Apple Podcasts, please leave us a positive review. That will mean a great deal to us. Uh, as we always say, stay safe. And more importantly, Jim, stay classy. <laughs> Space. The final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Your ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before.